my fellow Astorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. Valar Reredus is a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before, brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George R. R. Martin has said before, and will certainly say it again, Song of Ice and Fire was designed to be reread. We're your tour guides on this journey, but even we doing this full-time can't catch everything. So if you're watching live, feel free to submit comments or questions. Tell us we did something wrong. Or in advance, you can do that by joining one of our social media outlets like Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. You can find the links to that on the, in the video description or lots of places around the internet, really. Just find us on Twitter or Facebook, and you can find all the rest if you can find one of them. Also, shout out to the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. Every week, he does a companion episode to Valar Aridus where he expands on the thoughts from each chapter. So if you're really digging on the reread, there's a lot more to be had every week. You can kind of double your pleasure, so to speak. Big thanks to Nina, Good Queen Alley on Tumblr. That's one uh, L on Alley, And she contributes to every episode. Lots of great thoughts this time in particular. This week, uh, of course, I've been saying for a long, long time that I'm going to record Jenny's song. And hey, I finally did it. Yeah. Hey, woohoo. So it's going to be up for patrons. Uh, maybe by today, I already gave it over to our Benjineer. He's working on it. Uh, and I'm not sure how long it'll take him, but it's not the most complicated piece of uh, work. Yeah, so hopefully we'll have it up uh, pretty soon. And I intended that to be this week after the long delay because, well, it's the week where we talk about Jenny's song the most. It's the most featured it'll be in the books at any point, at least so far. And well, that's cool. So nice timing there. And if you want to join us on Patreon, go to patreon.com and you'll get that song along with a lot of other bonus episodes and bonus content, things like that. Whatever works for you. All right. So this week we have the aforementioned Aria 8, which we're calling High Heart 2, Eccentric Boogaloo, a.k.a. the one where Aria gets a hound. Jamie 6, the one where Jamie dreams big, a.k.a. the bear and the maiden unfair. Catelyn 5, the one with Rob's will, a.k.a. Psycho Euron, is back. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> Sam 3, Small Paul, a feast for ravens, a.k.a. hands of cold are always cold. And Aria 9, the gang takes a fairy, a.k.a. a storm of siblings. So it's a bookend of Arya. We got Arya 8 and 9, uh, starting with and ending with, with Catelyn in the middle. And as far as themes go, the songs. Oh, the songs. Yep. Well, you knew, you knew I already mentioned one of them, Jenny's song. That's a big one. And Sam sings the song of the seven to Gilly's Babe. And it's a full song, all the lyrics written out. Plus, Catelyn says, we're all just songs in the end, if we're lucky. Well, and related to Kat and her end, there's foreshadowing for more music. Quote, I dreamt such a clangor. I thought my head might burst. Drums and horns and pipes and screams. But the saddest sound was the little bells. Of course, that's a dream of the Red Wedding by the Ghost of High Heart. And even in the chapters where it isn't foreshadowed, the characters will be deeply impacted by it. And there are nods to that all around. It's just overwhelming the amount of foreshadowing and buildup for it that we're going to be dealing with today. And that little quote also names the other huge theme shared across so many of the POVs, dreams. The dreams of the Ghost of High Heart, of course, that's straightforward. But Jamie's dream, obviously, is well so big and long and interesting. Sam, <laughs> big and long, Jamie. <laughs> Cersei's going to accuse him of having that chopped off in his next chapter. But hey, we haven't gotten there yet. 
<laughs> Sam, even Sam has a dream this, in this, uh, this episode, in his chapter. And if you think it qualifies as a theme, there's an awful lot of rain in these chapters. Maybe that's just a feature, a common feature. I mean, four of these chapters are in the Riverlands, so they'd all have similar weather. But still, let's see, you know, Josh, uh, Josh? <laughs> that's what George does. Uh, <laughs> where did Josh come from? Anyway, Joe Buckley and Archmaster Ama point out another important theme, going back to the twins, then a plan to go north after, though it doesn't happen. That's still discussed greatly. Sam and Gilly are trying to get back to White Tree and then the wall. Jamie going back for Brienne, not to mention he's constantly thinking and dreaming of his past. Every single chapter he thinks about either Ares or Tywin or, or both. And, and here when we start today, a return to High Heart. They're going back there. And by going back there, we go back even farther, back to events several generations ago through memories and ghosts, which gives us at least one more related theme for today, ghosts. Samwell faces many dead brothers and is saved by another dead brother, one even older, killed, quote, long ago. Jamie dreams of ghosts, speaks to Kyburn about ghosts. Catelyn and Rob speak of lost dynasties and kingdoms at Old Stones, the very place Jenny danced with her ghosts. The place Arya goes with the Brother Without Banners is, you know, he's kind of a ghost, Beric himself, leading them to a ghost, the ghost of Highheart, and she talks about who Arya has killed in sadness and will kill in the future. And her conversation with Ned Dane, Arya's that is, calls up the ghosts of the Tower of Joy. And well, that's where we're going to start. Let's get into Arya 8, Highheart 2, Eccentric Boogaloo, the one where Arya gets a hound. It was hard to name this one because this is also the big Ned, Ned Dane reveal chapter. So really, we're starting off today with a doozy. This might be the biggest of the chapters today, but arguably Jamie's is, arguably, yeah, it's just, this, there could be some argument, I suppose. The Brotherhood Without Banners lives in an undisclosed location called the Hollow Hill, but it's clear they come to here to high heart from time to time, semi-regularly, perhaps. The first line of the chapter is... When Arya saw the shape of a great hill looming in the distance, golden in the afternoon sun, she knew it at once. Even though we're coming back to High Heart, even though we've seen it already, this chapter is spookier than the first time we come there. It goes a lot deeper with the lore, if you like that lore sort of thing. <laughs> Barrett continues to be very dark and serious, while the ghost is very dark and mocking until she sees Arya. The dwarf woman studied her with dim red eyes. I see you, she whispered. I see you, wolf child, blood child. I thought it was the Lord who smelled of death. She began to sob, her little body shaking. You are cruel to come to my hill, cruel. I gorged on grief at Summer Hall. I need none of yours. Be gone from here, dark heart, be gone. For someone that has a keen sense of the future, this is so very telling for Arya. The ghost is saying that Arya reminds her of the most traumatic event of her life, and she's had a long life. Yikes. She says Beric smells of death, but Arya smells worse? Ooh, wow, okay. I mean, Beric is literally dead. I mean, damn. Is Arya really going to kill that many people, or is she associating Arya with killing undead, maybe? Um, I don't know. If Arya slays a lot of whites, well, we have all seen how prophecy can miss nuance. So maybe, maybe it's a little lighter than it looks. But to her, in her dreams, it might look like she's killing lots of people or something. Nina suggests that when there was a five-year gap in play, when that was still likely to happen or still the plan from George R. R. Martin, Arya may have spent a lot of time 
as a faceless man doing lots of killings, getting experience, you know, several years worth of faceless manning. And that would indeed have the ghost seeing even more, if that's the case. That's a good theory. So who is the ghost of High Heart? Let's recap what seems to be the timeline for her and Summerhall and her role in it. We go into much greater detail in our Summerhall two-part episode, but even a short version of the relevant parts will suffice here to at least get our bearings. Keep in mind that some of this comes from the memory of none other than Barristan Selmy, but also from the history books and from elsewhere in Song of Ice and Fire. So maybe some of these details are a little off, but this is what we think we know. This isn't this is not theory so much as it is the, the core details that are pretty solid. So she knew Jenny of Oldstone somehow. Then Jenny and Duncan, the Prince Duncan, the Prince of Dragonflies, uh, get together. That's, uh, and her prophecies get noted at court. And given the clarity she's showing here to the Brother Without Banners multiple times, you could see why her prophecies got noted at court. I mean, all you got to do is predict a few things accurately like very accurately, things that couldn't be predicted, and people are going to immediately start believing because you've demonstrated proof. So she predicts the prince that was promised will be born of their line. It's not exactly clear what she meant by their line, whether it was a specific Targaryen branch or just the Targaryens, but to ensure this prophecy is fulfilled, Ares and Rhaella, that's the Mad King, and his sister, their father, Prince Jaehaerys, who is later King Jaehaerys after Summerhall, arranges for them to marry. Then Summerhall happens not long later. Many people die, and the Ghost of High Heart either witnesses it or surveys the damage afterwards. It's a tragedy no matter what, but worse for her personally, because she might blame herself for it. After all, they were trying to fulfill a prophecy that she told them about. Her visions have not revealed to her that the old prophecy has indeed been fulfilled. We see no indication from what she's saying that she is aware the dragons have returned. And it was a descendant of the line of Ares. So she did get it right, even though it came with some tragedy in the middle, or at least prior to it getting right. Hmm. Rhaegar also thought it was him. And of course, as Danny's older brother, he's in the same line as Danny. So you can kind of see how, well, Rhaegar is a whole other topic, but Rhaegar focused on prophecy. He thought it was him. And maybe... He even met the Ghost of High Heart. After all, he would go to the ruins of Summerhall to play his harp. And maybe she's gone there to visit too. It's possible. Barristan thinks she died, the ghost, with the rest of them at Summerhall, but clearly not. And he was not there himself. Barristan was not in the King's Guard until a little while after Summerhall. She asks for Jenny's song to be sung to her by Thomas Evans, which, of course, big association with Summerhall as well. She drinks wine, which, by the way, by, if you might think, well, that's not a big deal. But this is one of the ways we can probably be sure that she's not a real ghost. She's a, you know, figuratively a ghost. She's as real as the direwolf of the same name with the same coloring. <laughs> They're both red eyes with white coloring elsewhere. Fur, in his case, and you know, skin and fur. <laughs> and associated with the old gods, clearly. She used to be thought of as a woods witch. That's what the... World of Ice and Fire calls her when she's brought to court, I think it is. Or maybe that's what uh, Barrison calls her, I forget. Jenny thinks she's a children, a child of the forest. But this doesn't really work as a theory unless children of the forest appearance can really vary because we see children of the forest through Brand's POV and these, they don't look Those are the northern like children of the forest. These are the southern ones. <laughs> it is possible. We get also, to... she's no child. That's true. She is no child. 
<laughs> Neither are the actual children, I suppose. Of the forest. Of the we forest. We can say that. Yes. <laughs> there are multiple species of mermaid. I mean, and obviously I, lots I of mean, species of people. it's not that crazy. It's I really not. don't think it's the case, but like, I, I could easily see there being some different variants. Yeah. The thing is, like, the children have, the children of the forest have like three fingers and things like yeah, that, which I'm seems not. like she's, it's, it's, anyway. she's not a child of the forest. <laughs> Nina has a good suggestion here. It might be, she, she might be a descendant of Prince Eamon Targaryen and Alice Rivers. Fire and Blood gave more information on Alice. We've talked about her. We did a whole episode on Alice Rivers uh, called Witch Queen of Hall. And, well, she had visions. She had visions that aren't necessarily related to the old gods. Um, maybe there are some sort of dragon dream, not dragon dream, but, uh, you know, fireborn dreaming. That's, that discipline. We're not clear where her powers originate, but she definitely uh, held herself out as Eamon's widow and claimed to be pregnant and seemed to be showing that. Now, th- if, if this is her child, the ghost of Valhara will be 165 years old. So that's a bit long. I mean, that's 40 years older than Bloodraven even. So maybe that's a bit much, but maybe she could be a grandchild or yeah, of, uh, of Eamon and Alice. So it's possible. It's, a, it's one of those theories that has some merit to it, but it's also, there's not a ton directly connected and it doesn't, it's, it's not really met with opposition because there just aren't other theories to pair it up against. It's one of the problems here, but... There's also not a great amount of significance. Right, right, that's true. But maybe, and of course, Fire and Blood ends with the Alice River situation up in there. So we don't have a conclusion to her saga in Fire and Blood, so it's, it's hard to look for clues with how she ends to anything else. So... That's going to just have to wait there for more information, but it's very interesting and I would love to know more. So like I said, and like she was last time, the ghost is remarkably clear and accurate with her predictions. There's, it's, she just hits them right on the nose. There's, there's less of the metaphor. Uh, anyway, let's, just, let's quote them and uh, go through them real quick. The wet one, the Kraken King, my lords. I dreamt him dead and he died. And the iron squids now turn on one another. Oh, and Lord Hoster Tully's died too. But you know that, don't you? In the Hall of Kings, the goat sits alone and fevered as the great dog descends on him. So those are fairly straightforward. I mean, the Balon dies and the Kraken, the iron squids turn on each other. That's, that, that one you might have been able to just look at the first time and get it. And of course, Balon is going to be revealed to be dead by the captain of the Miraham two chapters from now. Lord Hoster Tully's died. That's not, that's blatantly just saying that. Lord Hoster Tully died. That's not prophecy. That's just, a, this, is, this is a fact. And it's true. And it, that happened in Catelyn's last chapter. In the Hall of Kings, the goat sits alone and fevered as the great dog descends on him. That's also pretty straightforward. The Hall of Kings is Hall. That's what it's been called. The goat sits alone. That's Vargo Hote. Fevered because Brienne bit his ear off and he's got a fever. The great dog descending on him. That's Gregor Clegane, who Tywin has already decided to send over there. And then the next bit. I dreamt a wolf howling in the rain, but no one heard his grief, the dwarf woman was saying. I dreamt such a clangor, I thought my head might burst, drums and horns and pipes and screams. But the saddest sound was the little bells. I dreamt of a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs. And later, I dreamt that maid again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. Wolf howling in the rain, no one hearing his grief. That's pretty clearly the Red Wedding with Grey Wind trapped and in the rain and alone. Dreamt such a clangor that I thought my head would burst. 
That's the quote I read at the beginning. That's certainly the Red Wedding, the, the music being so terrible, uh, non-musicians playing music, and of course, all the murdering going on. The maid with a, at a feast, purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs. That is Sansa with the purple amethyst hairnet. And that maid again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. This one's a little bit of debate too. It could be, on the other hand, it, on one hand, it seems like it could be just her tearing up Robert Aaron's giant doll when he stomps on the castle that she makes out of snow. On the other hand, that would be an awfully kind of weak thing to be prophesying about when we have these major events. I mean, we have red wedding, purple wedding, and then doll murder? Is really is that really <laughs> killing a doll? Is that I mean it could be because prophecy is weird like that and things that look big can turn out small, but it might be not that. So another interpretation could be killing Littlefinger at Winterfell, Castle Built of Snow. That is what she was doing when she built that castle made of snow. She was remaking Winterfell. And of course, calling Winterfell a castle built of snow is, it's, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it works pretty well. And slaying a savage giant there, well, you could see giants, real giants coming from the wall. Sansa probably won't do that. But Littlefinger's sigil is the Titan of Bravos. Yes, his chosen sigil is the Mockingbird, but his inherited sigil is the Titan of Bravo. So that could be the savage giant in a castle built of snow. But even that has, you know, maybe that's, it's just so far away from everything else. Like it hasn't even happened yet. And where these other things are so prominent and soon, all these other events either just happened or are about to happen. And well, the doll killing comes not that long from now, but if Sansa does deal with Littlefinger and is responsible for his death, well, that's clearly not going to happen until at least book six. And uh, if there's a giant, in, you know, an actual giant getting into Winterfell, well, who knows when that'll happen, but it clearly also clearly hasn't happened yet. So the little bells, do you think that has to do with Jingle Bell? Yes. Think, yes. I do think that has to do with little bells because he's an innocent and it's it's pretty sad that he's one of the ones killed and i don't yeah. know that there's other bells at the red wedding yeah and it all has to do with the red wedding yeah so i think that's what it has enough. to be cuz i can't think of what another bell would be and that is a pretty sad sound yeah i like uh, there's been some people talking about the little bells <laughs> justin dl97 said saddest sound was the bells we know ghost of high heart we saw season 8 too <laughs> anyways yes <laughs> and then finally she says the black fish holds the rivers now. If it's the mother you want, seek her at the twins. The black fish holds the rivers now. That's also two chapters from now going to be revealed. Very completely true. Very accurate. Blackfish is being left behind to guard the... Well, he's being given the title Warden of the Southern Marches. And so he's not going to the Red Wedding. He's in charge. And that is right on. And the mother, that's Catelyn, seek her at the twins. Indeed. She hasn't even gotten there, but she's on her way unless, you know, unless maybe the chapters are at the same time. It's, it's hard to tell exactly where in the timeline they are. Obviously, it's close, but it could be simultaneous. Interpretations aside, some of these are not open to interpretation, really. They're, like I said, they're just straightforward. They're not metaphor. Some of them are definitely not metaphor. I mean, the Kraken King is dead. Ostratoli is dead. These are, <laughs> this is really, there's going to be a wedding at the twins. There's no... The Black Fish. Yeah, it's not dressed up in the usual, like, dense, multi-interpretive language. Now, back when this book first came out, there were probably people interpreting these a lot of different ways. I did, certainly. I don't remember it that well because, heck, that's 18 years ago and I've it's been a long time thinking about these things in different ways. But 
it seemed fairly straightforward in some ways even back then, and even more so after the fact, obviously. So how does she have such clarity? Does Bloodraven have that level of clarity? Melisandre does not, it seems. Makoro, though, perhaps does. Thoros clearly doesn't, uh, or they would not need to visit the ghost at all, I suppose, or eh, maybe they just want to get extra info. But still, his powers won't work here, and that is another quirk of this chapter that's very interesting. So let's look at that. Thoros turned from the fire, sighing. Not here, not now, but some days, yes, the Lord of Light grants me visions. And a short bit later, she echoes him, perhaps indicating she was eavesdropping, using natural means or not. And she, I mean, the ghost of High Heart. Look in your fires, pink priest, and you will see. Not now, though, not here. You'll see nothing here. So it seems to be a recurring theme that the weirwood stumps still have power, maybe even weirwood objects, perhaps because they still have roots which connect to each other, which would not apply to the objects, of course, but it's easier to see with stumps because they still have this root system. With objects, it's a little, a little, maybe a little more out there as an idea, but still possible. In the very next chapter, Jamie 6, he dreams big while resting his head on a weirwood stump. And here, well, the ghost of High Heart lives amidst 31 flavors. I mean, stumps. If that one stump has power, then 31 must have, well, that could be the explanation here. That might be why her visions are so clear. Each stump adds to the power of the place. And with so much power, she's got nice, clear visions. Now, she claims this place hates fire for it recalls when the first men arrived for the first time. Keep in mind, it was an Andal king who cut down the trees. So she's thinking of a time older than that, even by far. Eons before that. This is really, really long ago. Thoros believes the werewolves whisper to her when she sleeps. See, I have a question here, by yeah, the way. sure. She calls him a pink priest. <laughs> Do you think that's her being insulting? Do you think she thinks of that as for red priests in general or for him as not being as strong as the others? I think it's just mocking because she might, she calls Barrick, you know, smells of death and she mocks Lem and she just like cracks jokes. Like if she jokes. saw Melisandre, who's like, much more powerful than Thoros and much more actually a red priestess. Hmm. I don't know that she'd call her a pink priestess. Yeah, maybe not. But see, but but Melisandre hasn't done any resurrecting. So, you That's know, true. there is that. <laughs> there is that. There is that. So, so maybe, maybe Ghost of High Heart just likes to make fun of yeah. I don't know. It's a good, it's a good point. I, I lean towards her just being mocking, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's certainly possible there's more to it. Yeah, because obviously what George does that all the time, puts in these multiple meanings. How about actually Thoros is going to turn to uh, Ramsey and Roos's side? <laughs> <laughs> He'll be a pink flayed priest. I don't want to see that. <laughs> but yeah, I guess if it comes true, that'll be like, oh man, that was the prophecy. Shoot. Oh, people point out that uh, his maybe his red cloak has turned pink at this point. It's faded. That yeah. almost certainly would be true. Yeah, yeah like there's no way he's got a bright priest. red cloak He's anymore. literally a pink priest. That makes sense. Yellow uh, oaf. Yeah, that makes sense. I his like that. faded red robes. Yeah, that would he, they they would be pinkish. Okay. Yeah, yeah. he would li be literally pink while yeah, Lem has his like faded yellow priest. cloak and Barracks is faded black. And yeah, okay. Well, Thoros speaks of his flame reading skills, but it's Barracks' comments on fire that draw the attention most, if you ask me. Fire consumes. Lord Barrack stood behind him, and there was something in his voice that silenced Thoros at once. It consumes, and when there is when it is done, there is nothing left. Nothing. 
So thinking of this in light of other people who will be dealing with fire, especially Jon Snow, well, despite the fire, that doesn't sound like a bright future, right? <laughs> I mean, fire, bright future, haha. Though maybe the preserving power of cold can reach some sort of equity where John doesn't just disintegrate over time. I don't know. This is it's hard to completely understand what this what is meant by this, but it's definitely ominous. What the specifics, the details, maybe we can't get at, but Beric is is making no bones about it. This he's saying the long term of this is 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 gone, is emptiness, nothing. Nina suggests the about this line that it's it sounds negative in the moment, but it's a lot of it is personal for him. So much of his own identity has been burned away by multiple resurrections. But she says there's a positive way to look at it, perhaps against an enemy that can't be stopped by normal weapons like the others. Clearly, or the heart of winter, whatever is behind them, whatever is empowering them, if anything, if there's any sort of supernatural uh, conduit or means for them to draw off of having this kind of weapon or the ability to not freeze in the extreme cold, like being powered by uh, warmth from uh, supernatural warmth, that might be necessary to defeat the others. It has been a long-standing theory that Jon Snow's uh, will, his death is necessary to create the conditions enabling him to go to replicate what the last hero story, where the last hero's companions all die and his sword breaks and there's, it's incredibly frozen. Now, a lot of that sounds more like what's happening to Bran, but, you know, Azor, the Azor Ahai myths can sometimes point to multiple people, so maybe the last hero in Cantu, maybe it can have some of John and some of Bran in it. Not really clear, but it's certainly, there is, I agree with Nina that there's a good side to it. It might be necessary. Uh, it might be the only way. Doesn't bode well for Danny either, though, or Melisandre, but mm, we kind of have a sense of them not making it through anyway. So that could just be confirmation of that on the book side. But maybe not, maybe not. As usual, we do not assume what happens on the show is going to happen in the books. We just consider it as a possibility. Thoros has a look in the flames later in the chapter two. After they leave High Heart, his powers are, you know, back on. And so... The Lord granted me a view of River Run, an island in a sea of fire, it seemed. The flames were leaping lions with long crimson claws. And how they roared. A sea of Lannisters, my lady. River Run will soon come under attack. Indeed it will. This is the prolonged siege eventually settled by Jamie in A Feast for Crows. This is paired with some of Thoros' backstory. He had, you know, this talent for reading the flames. And though he wasn't religious, truly, he is now. <laughs> Resurrection, as we mentioned a minute ago, is, uh, well, uh, shall we say, part of a few other real-world belief systems <laughs> that really tend to shock and uh, make believers out of people. If you see someone resurrected, that's going to change your worldview if you didn't previously believe in the possibility of resurrection, right? So our flick chatters wonder about the timing of the resurrection and how it maybe pertains to magic returning elsewhere, right? How this may line up with what Corin was saying about the trees having eyes again, about the return of the others. All this may be sort of chronologically connected. I've always thought, Personally, since the seasons are so screwy and magic seems to be related to that and magic itself seems to be on some kind of rising and falling cycle, maybe these two things are linked. I do recall long ago, George, saying that the cycle of seasons will be at least somewhat explained, um, if not addressed. And well, maybe we'll find out. So let's talk about the 
other big part of this chapter, the discussion between Arya with Gendry nearby too, participating a little bit, and Ned Dane. It starts off with this quote that makes you a little sad. She says, have you killed anyone? Or he says, have you killed anyone? Or she says, rather. Yeah, she says, have you killed anyone? That seemed to startle him. I'm only 12. I killed a boy when I was eight, Arya almost said, but she thought she'd better not. As Joe Buckley puts it, this conversation kicks off Arya's guilt with the death she has caused directly or indirectly and is another contributor to the sadness she feels throughout this chapter, which influences her behavior near the end, which leads to her being out away from enough people that Sandor can grab her. So she already felt guilty and unwanted by her family in her last chapter because of petty things like clothes and needlework, things that she thinks matter a lot. And that's just a, says a lot about her state of mind and just makes it even more sad for her. So adding up all her kills in comparison to an older boy who's actually a lord and fought in battles. I mean, he's been in all of Beric's battles. So she's even more of an outsider through all this. It just points, it just shows how unique her situation is, how unusual it is, and how no one else is in a situation like her at all. Even Ned Dane, a lord roughly her age, and there's these huge differences they have. I mean, you'd think that that would be some, that they could connect over their common nobility and their past, and, and they do somewhat, but part of it also makes Arya sad because it's just, it just reinforces her loneliness and her separation from, from her family and from society and, and other things. And this is also the chapter she loses Gendry, and that's you know, kind of by an accident. A silence fell. Gendry gave Arya a queer look, then turned away to brush his horse. Outside, the rain came down and down. And, and that's the way their friendship ends. For now, I mean, we can probably assume they'll see each other again. Maybe not. But it's a friendship that's been through the very worst the world has to offer and one that kept them alive and it really helped them. I, I mean, it was huge. I think Gendry and Arya, if they hadn't been together, they might not have survived. Arya is... Uh, She's going to angrily reflect about this, thinking that Gendry was her last chance at having a pack. But really, maybe she that maybe that was not the right idea. But she's just a little girl. I mean, he was the one who stuck with her. She per, he persevered. And if we thought Arya was a loner, I mean, she kind of is. But she clearly wanted to be with other people, and she really valued her time with Gendry. And and just think about how she was with Hot Pie. She missed Hot Pie. After the Red Wedding and after Sandor and after leaving Westeros entirely, it's just, Arya's going to be almost completely shut off from all these things. It's just getting, she's getting farther and farther away from these things that she's just now losing or that she's gradually been losing since she separated from her family in uh, Game of Thrones. Hopefully, she gets to reconnect with that. We have some reason to be optimistic uh, given her not throwing needle in the river or in the canals and, and holding on to some of her identity, and having skin-changing skills manifesting and all that. So I think she's still going to be a Stark. But for now, this is a very sad moment for her and a sad series of circumstances. Uh, Nina suggests, the, the, um, considering the high heart, that High Heart was supposed to be sacred to the children of the forest, that, and because it stood above the rain, it, it, was, it, it kind of sheltered from the, all the area around it because it's so tall and the rain will you know, kind of go down the hill. It could be a note about the Hammer of the Waters or related to it. Obviously, the Hammer of the Waters was, you know, this, we're nowhere near the neck here. But that type of magic, um, or it could have been used in smaller doses. You, it's, I mean, seriously, they don't go from just no water magic straight to the Hammer of the Waters, right? That's some gigantic cataclysmic ocean uh, tidal wave on land. Surely they have 
lesser versions of that, just like a trickle here and there. <laughs> Maybe they can bring rain, things like that, manipulate the weather. So I could see the the old school way back in the day, Children of the Forest using weather or flooding on a larger scale. I mean, not on a larger scale, but on a smaller scale to stop invaders or to defend a place like this. That's a great theory. I like that a lot. The association of albinos with ghosts in this chapter, of course, is a reminder to Bloodraven and Bran, but, but not just physically, the concept that they're haunted by ghosts. Remember that Bloodraven says, a brother that I loved, a brother that I hated, a woman I desired. Not that different from Jenny, uh, from uh, the Ghost of High Heart talking about Jenny and maybe Rhaegar or Duncan and, and just the grief she gorged on at Summer Hall. It's not clear who she feels bad for other than Jenny. <laughs> but surely that's not the only person that uh, she misses in her whole life. Well, maybe. Anyway, more about Ned Dane. Does it really not accurately describe House Dane to say that so far there's just a lot of buildup, mysteries, but hasn't really progressed yet? I'm not cr- complaining, just pointing out where we're at. It's tantalizing. I really want to know more about House Dane, but it's George has been holding that back. He's clearly going to deliver that later. And I do mean clearly. Uh, Edric seemed a likely candidate to wield Dawn before the scrapping of the five-year gap. Again, we're mentioning that here. So this raises the idea of someone else getting it, which would have to be Darkstar. He's the only other Dane, and he did not exist in this book. Like I don't think George had invented him. There was no high hermitage. The cadet branch of the Danes was probably invented because of the five-year gap. But George could have made Darkstar some other house, but he chose Dane. So clearly that matters. I've, young, I've long thought that young Griff would want to look as much like Rhaegar as possible because that's his father. He's trying to make people think, I'm like my father. And while Rhaegar's best friend was Arthur Dane wielding Dawn, now Darkstar is not Arthur Dane, but he would look like it. He would look like a Dane. And if he's holding Dawn, well, people who don't know better, which is going to be almost everyone, because Darkstar isn't exactly famous, well, then that's going to really conjure up images of Rhaegar. Uh, Rhaegar with the Dane at his side. I mean, it's going to seem so similar. So considering how important people like Varys believe symbols are, you could really see this as, a, as an angle. So Edric, what does that mean for Edric then? I mean, maybe he's just a casualty of the five-year gap, or eventually he'll be an actual casualty if he may not be, quote-unquote, needed anymore. But George may have some other plan for him. George is a gardener. He can change his mind. George isn't the type to just say, oh, I don't need this character anymore. Let's kill him. He might do that, but he's got other choices. He could do other things with Edric. We'll have to see. Now, if you want more on House Dane, again, we did two full episodes on them. So clearly I can't cover all the ins and outs of, of what there is to say about House Dane in a single episode of Valar Reredus. So if you want more, go there. Uh, we made those episodes quite a while ago, but they haven't, I don't think, I would, there's very little I would do differently with those episodes because as I said, we haven't exactly learned a whole lot new about House Dane, even from, say, Fire and Blood or anything like that. Uh, Ned's physical appearance is interesting, of course. It's somewhat Valyrian, but George has specifically said they're not Valyrian. Common ancient ancestor remains possible. Same goes for Darkstar. That's another topic I go to and uh, we go to into much greater detail in, in the Dane episodes. Gendry's comment to Ned Dane this is pretty uh, tongue-in-cheek. He says, you could just shave your head if, he's, if you're complaining about your hair. And this is almost certainly a nod to Duncan Egg. Ned, Ned Dane, looks a bit like Egg with his pale hair and bluish-purple eyes. And of course, he shaves his head. And he's uh, in this age range when we first meet him. 
So that's pretty cool. Let's be clear on what Milk Brother means. That's a big part of this chapter. Willa uh, is named as Ned, uh, Ned and Jon Snow's wet nurse. Of course, we've been hearing about Willa since the beginning of A Game of Thrones. Ned Stark actually brought Willa back to Winterfell. We, we hear that. But apparently she was then sent back home because people were talking, people were whispering. And well, Willa probably knew some stuff. And so Ned might want to make sure she doesn't tell anyone those things and sending her away also would keep, would probably slow down some of the talk, if not all of it. In general, it's really interesting to think about what the Danes at Starfall knew about the Tower of Joy. Ashara Dane probably knew about Lyanna being there and it might be likely that Ashara is the one that sent Willa there. I mean, you got a bunch of Kingsguard with a pregnant lady. What are they going to do? This is clearly not their province. And in Westeros, it's kind of like a lot of men treat pregnant women as, they just don't know what to do. They, they think it's, the, it's, it's outside of their scope of, of ability so completely and from both a societal and personal perspective, they have no idea what's going on. So they need real people that can handle a child. And they're not going to risk delivering a baby and caring for a baby who's a prince with Kingsguard and squires or whatever other servants happen to be at the Tower of Joy. You need someone that's got some ability. And that's probably how Willa got involved in all this. And that's, and we, we can guess that she came from Starfall because that's where she ended up and because she's the nurse for Edric Dane. So, Milk Brother doesn't mean they were nursing on Will at the same time. Just like brother doesn't mean you were born at the same time as your brother. You could be born 10 years apart and still be someone's brother, brother. So, Milk Brother also doesn't mean you shared the milk at the same time. This was a big debate back in the day about, well, how could they be? John is 15 or 16 and Edric is 12. Why would they be? That's not part of this at all. Milk Brother does not imply same time. So, we, there's still so many other questions like, what is Willa? Is Willa still alive? Does she, can she tell people things? Does she have more information? Probably. Does George, does George change his plans on what she's going to do? And well, this could be why Gerald Dane was invented. Maybe he knows more about it. Edric would have been too young. I mean, he wasn't even born during the Tower of Joy. So Gerald Dane has at least talked about Arthur Dane and he not in, he's not friendly about it, but hey, anyway. Also a quick mention of Ashara. She's, what a tragic story. In a span of two or three years, stillbirth of a child, murder of a Stark brother who may have been her lover, rape and murder of the princess she served at court. Remember, she was one of Elia's ladies-in-waiting. Murder of the princess's children. She probably knew those kids, uh, meaning young Aegon and Rhaenys that were killed by uh, Omri Lorch and Gregor Clegane. And then, of course, Arthur Dane dies in combat, which might have been because of her. She may have tipped off Ned to where the Tower of Joy was which led to them fighting and dying, which is really, really interesting as a piece of synchronicity in this chapter because the ghost of Highheart may also be this figure of, oh, what have I done? I led these people down this road that got them all killed. And now, well, maybe Ashara Dane feels similarly. All right. Liat Rubenfeld says, do you think that Jenny's song is a reference to John fighting alongside Arya at Highheart, Summerhall, Harrenhal, and Oldstones? Hmm. Could be. I mean, I feel like Jenny's song and Summerhall is, we, we've only begun to scratch the surface of all the things that it can point to. I think there's going to be far more revelations. And John, the idea of John going south to help 
deal with things or be a part of, of the campaigns in the South or to fight the dead in the South, all are very possible. Going back to High Heart or Summer Hall or Heron Hall. Well, Heron Hall is the most likely out of those named, I think, for people to go back to because it's just where, because of its location and its size and it's, it's been foreshadowed for some in-game stuff, maybe. I'm a little dubious we'll ever go back to Old Stones, but eh, we'll see. High Heart, I would love to go back to High Heart. And Summer Hall itself, I feel like we're going to go there. But the circumstances, there's so many different possibilities. It might just be, you know, during the war, Aegon's war against the, in the Stormlands. But I do think that's possible. I have, and, I, and it's a new idea to me, actually. I haven't heard of, of that being a John Arya thing. Let's jump ahead to the Brotherhood Without Banners and what's their reaction to going, hey, where did Arya go? <laughs> where, is, where is Arya? Well, they did kind of figure it out. Uh, from one means or another, maybe because of Thoros's flames, maybe other things, probably just from talking to people, though. Here's the quote. At the end of this book, it's from the Astarmaswords epilogue. Thanks to Nina for, for finding this one for us. The outlaw gave him an encouraging smile. Well, as it happens, we're looking for a dog that ran away. A dog? Merritt was lost. What kind of dog? He answers to the name Sandor Clegane. Thoros says he was making for the twins. We found the ferrymen who took him across the trident and the poor sod he robbed on the king's road. Did you see him at the wedding, perchance? The red wedding? Merritt's skull felt as if it were about to split, but he did his best to recall. There had been so much confusion, but surely someone would have mentioned Joffrey's dog sniffing around the twins. He wasn't in the castle, not at the main feast. He might have been at the bastard feast or in the camps, but... No, someone would have said. Then they mentioned Arya would be with him, but that doesn't ring a bell either. And of course, then they hang him. So of course he was wrong. Merritt isn't lying. Uh, he didn't see Sandor and Arya there, but they were, as we well know. And of course, uh, speaking of ringing bells, some um, Gendry talking about ringing uh, the bell of that girl who's his sister. So yeah, <laughs> glad he doesn't do that. But here's a really ironic, slightly tragic, slightly funny more tragic than funny, but also funny. Uh, quote here. Gendry ignored that. At least your father raised his bastard, not like mine. I don't even know my father's name. Some smelly drunk, I'd wager, like the others my mother dragged home from the alehouse. Whenever she got mad at me, she'd say, if your father was here, he'd beat you bloody. That's all I know of him. He spat. Well, if he was here now, might be I'd beat him bloody. But he's dead, I figure. And your father's dead, too. So what does it matter who he lay with? Mm. Yeah, I mean, Gendry makes some good points here. But of course, the, the biggest thing is all the irony. Some smelly drunk, I'd wager. Yeah, Robert Baratheon was a drunk. That's beat pretty fair. Beat his child. Beat his yeah. child, absolutely. Definitely beat Joffrey. We know of one major time where he beat Joffrey. And it's kind of hard to imagine that was the only one. It's funny, I was just talking to Chloe of Girls Gone Canon about this very topic, about uh, how much abuse Robert... It, dealt out to Joffrey. Yeah, probably a good bit. At first, I thought it was more minor. And after talking to her more, I was like, yeah, no, he probably hit Joffrey several times. And that, of course, leads to Joffrey. Part of what leads to Joffrey being the way he is. That is, uh, beating young kids does lead to them growing up to be violent. This is also, of course, ironic because he's dead, I figure. Yeah, that's true. He is dead. You're right about that, Gendry. And she says, and your father's dead too, which is also true. But he says, 
At least your father raised his bastard, not like mine. Very true. Robert did not raise his... Robert didn't even raise his trueborn kid. Wait, no, he didn't have trueborn kids. <laughs> he didn't raise the ones he thought were trueborn. <laughs> also, another ironic thing here is Gendry is mocking Arya and, and Edric for like, oh, oh, look at all the nobles. Look at the lords and ladies everywhere. <laughs> but if he gets legitimized later, which he might, then he's going to be higher ranked, socially speaking, than either of them. So <laughs> that'll be also be like, hey, look at you lowborn, just little lords, uh, just daughters of lords. And I'm a king. I'm a, I'm a great lord of, not a king, but I'm a great lord of Storm's End. Maybe, maybe not. That might be Edric Storm. Speaking of Edricks, too many Edricks, man. Neds, Edricks, there's just all over the place. Which, by the way, I didn't even mention that as another curiosity. If this, if the Danes are angry at Ned Stark, then why do they call this kid Ned? I mean, that you do not, that would be like Ned Stark having a kid naming him Ares or something. I mean, <laughs> like, I don't think you'd name your kid after someone that caused all this harm to your family. So perhaps... That's not their belief. They don't, maybe they don't believe Ned caused all this harm. They have a different take. So all the more reason to, we need to interview some of these Danes, darn it. And of course, let's not forget that Illyria Dane is mentioned here. That's uh, who Beric Dondarrion was going to marry. And uh, he doesn't even remember her. He doesn't even remember her name. I wonder if they like knew each other were close, actually. Yeah, good question. Like how they didn't live that far away from each other. They would interact, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Hmm. Anyway, sad. It is sad. One of the great features of our Facebook discussion group is the occasional, well, besides the excellent recurring great takes from people, but in the uh, we also occasionally get fun stuff like Michael Klarfeld posting a preview of his. Riverlands map, which is extremely detailed. It includes a lot of smaller scale things that you don't normally see on maps. It's just a work in progress. But you know, Michael, his works in progress are better than most people's best efforts. So <laughs> certainly better than mine. I have none of that kind of talent. And so he's also getting along with the reach. He's getting pretty close there. He just did my portrait. That's right. I'm Rose of Red Lake. Rose of Red Lake. Got the hair coloring and everything for it. The most lovely rose of Red Lake I've ever seen. Only one you've ever seen. Okay, true, true. <laughs> but I feel like it would stack up against the others if I did see them. And we go on. Jamie Six, the one where Jamie dreams big, a.k.a. the bear and the maiden unfair. And of course, since it's Jamie chapter, he thinks about Ares and Cersei and his father. But this one really goes to places no other Jamie chapter does. He, he thinks about those people in kind of his usual way. But then in his dream... It's so different. And this is not only different than other Jamie chapters, it's really just kind of different than other dreams. It's really quite a standout. It's a puzzler. It's very fascinating. And it seems to coincide with probably the first truly noble act of Jamie's point of view. Quote, Though his fever lingered stubbornly, the stump was healing clean, and Kyburn said his arm was no longer in danger. Yeah, I suppose his gamble paid off. Kyburn wanted to take off a lot more of the arm, and Jamie was like, no, you do that, I'll kill you. Seems like it went fine. There's some synchronicity here as Jamie thinks of getting his white cloak at Hall. He has that memory recurring, especially when he's around Hall, and how bitter that all was. These memories are, are no fun for him. And then Pretty Pia just climbs into bed with him while he's half unconscious and is like, I was there that day. I saw you get your white cloak. You were so hot. Not sleeping with Pia is, I don't know, I think it's pretty surprising. I mean, in retrospect, knowing what we know about Jamie now, it's not. But at the time when I first read it, I was it's like, that's interesting. I mean, 
it's very rare that it, any dude in this story, especially in circumstances like this, will turn down someone that's put in the hard sell like that. I mean, she was coming on strong, right? And apparently pretty as well. Later, Gregor sadly smashes her face in and she loses a bunch of teeth, but that hasn't happened yet. So that's later down the line. So it also makes for quite a contrast to Rob Stark. The circumstances are similar, right? You have a cute girl, you have a guy recovering from an injury, you're promised to someone else. But Rob was risking a lot by getting together with Jane, whereas Jamie, he's not risking nearly as much. I mean, you're risking all the standard things you're always risking with having unprotected sex with a stranger. But <laughs> compared to your kingdom, that's still, you see what I mean, the difference in risk is, is gigantic. So yes, there's a lot similar, but when you weigh the risk slash reward, that's where the difference is, is major. But still, that's beside the point. The risk is irrelevant to Jamie. This is going to, to him, it's about upholding his oath, not oath, but his commitment to Cersei. That's going to bother him later. Not that he didn't sleep with Pia, but that he stayed true to her while she did not. Now, of course, staying true has multiple meanings. We're just talking about sexual relationships. But this is only one aspect of Cersei and Jamie beginning to fracture in their connection that's being raised in this chapter. There's some very big, big signs of that coming. He's still the same guy who couldn't wait for Cersei and Winterfell, which led to being seen by Bran. And of course, he's going to be so eager for her that he has sex with Cersei right next to Joffrey's body in the Sept about as soon as he gets to King's Landing. She's not going to like that. So they're both doing things that upset the other. And then she's going to hate it even more because she's going to approach him and try to start having sex with him at White Sword Tower. And he's like, no, not here. And she's like, what do you mean not here? We just did it in the Sept in front of our son's body. Like, what are you, what are you talking about, hypocrite? Anyway, there you can see these things starting to fray. 31 stumps for the ghost of High Heart, and now one for Jamie. I'm not talking about his hand. Yeah, that, that sounds like I was going for a pun there. But I'm talking about Werewood stumps. Some things about that and other things before we actually get into the meat of the dream. It's a confounding dream, but so is the setup for it. Perhaps the longest dream sequence in the entire series. I didn't actually count, but I, I think it, it's up there. Given the Werewood stump, was the dream sent? Was it, was Bloodraven involved or Bran from the future, maybe? Yeah, you never, it's, that's always really hard to guess at because it always seems like it's possible. But there's rarely enough to be like, yeah, that's it. So just throw that out there and consider it, but then we got to move on. This a little bit reminds me of Theon's dream when he slept in Ned's bed, which also has werewood involved, though, you know, carved werewood rather than a stump. Still, that dream of Theon's had a lot of stuff about his own future but stuff that he could have known already. But it also had distinctly supernatural elements, stuff that Theon just couldn't have known. Maybe it was a mashup of dream types, perhaps. Theon was having lots of stuff going on in his life at the time. But in this case, it fits even better as an explanation because we're not only dealing with a werewood stump. Jamie has a fever, which everybody knows fevers can cause extra dreaming, especially in A Song of Ice and Fire. But hey, that's a real world thing too. And on top of that, dreamy... Ha dreamy? <laughs> top of that, Jamie has been drinking dream wine. And the name dream wine says it all, right? Maybe dream wine helped Bran activate his powers because there's a night where Lewin gives him dream wine to help him sleep because he's having wolf dreams. And he takes the, he takes the dream wine and immediately has wolf dreams. <laughs> so either the dream wine did nothing or maybe it helped. So anyway, who knows? But for the multiple potential sources of dreams might help explain why this dream seems to have so many elements that normally don't fall together. Well, 
Here's the first quote I've pulled from the dream. Your place, the voice echoed. It was a hundred voices, a thousand. The voices of all the Lannisters since Lan the Clever, who'd lived at the dawn of days. But most of all, it was his father's voice. And beside Lord Tywin stood his sister, pale and beautiful, a torch burning in her hand. Joffrey was there as well, the son they'd made together. And behind him, a dozen more dark shapes with golden hair. I think some of this is clear enough. I mean, Jamie's losing his connection to his family, right? This is all him. These are all these Lannisters of, of many generations, including the closest ones to him. And he's not having it. We know he's pretty soon going to say, no, I don't want Castle Rock. I want to stay in the Kingsguard. He's not going to go there when Tywin wants him to. So, I mean, that's a pretty straightforward connection, right? He's, we know he's going to be fracturing from Cersei. You know, Joffrey's about to die. Um, and he's never had much of a connection to Tommen. And he's going to get into a big argument with Tywin when, they get, when he gets back over this. And so Kingsguard don't inherit. So he's kind of pushing his Lannister side away. And well, that, so that part's at least kind of straightforward. But, you know, he, also he feels guilt. Now, the next part is the Kingsguard showing up with Rhaegar. And this is where a lot of his guilt comes up. He feels like a failure as a Kingsguard. And that's the thing that the, his Kingsguard ghost brothers accuse him of, of not protecting the king they swore to protect. But not just that. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Jamie is, despite the righteousness of saving the city, he still feels guilty about not being a good Kingsguard. Dream Brienne says, I mislike this place just as Jamie said about the destroyed inn that they pass early in this chapter after leaving Harrenhal. Steel Stanks Walton says, hey, let's stop and rest. Jamie recognizes the inn. He recalls how uh, the person that held the inn was impressed and, and told Jamie that I'm going to be telling my grandkids that a Kingsguard knight stayed here. Jamie wonders how that old man tells that story now that after figure, after learning that this was the Kingslayer later and well, probably isn't so proud of it now. I mean, Jamie, he's still going to tell the story. I mean, it's still the Kingslayer, but he's maybe not going to tell it as a, as a story of being honored. So he's not entirely wrong. Jamie is uh, naked in the dream, although he has his boots on. Anyway, <laughs> Everyone else apart from Brienne appears to be clothed. Very often in literature, nakedness is very straightforwardly suggested as a form of vulnerability, right? Jamie can't hide behind his Kingsguard armor or his Lannister armor any more than he can hide behind his metaphorical armor, his personality that he hides behind, his tough guy exterior, his I don't care, knight, uh, you know, I'm above everything, the world is just killers kind of attitude that he showed to Catelyn. But that's an attitude he's growing out of because of his lost hand and because of Brienne. As I've said before, I think Brienne has as much to do with it as, as the loss of a sword hand. But that's a, that's a debate and an opinion-based thing for y'all to decide on your own. So Jamie is giving a given a chance here to redefine himself because nakedness is also a sign of rebirth, right? It's a going back to the way you started. Another going back. Here we go for this theme. Brienne is also naked in this dream. And that's interesting because she's, not bothered by it, but it's a dream. She was bothered by being naked in front of Jamie in the baths, though, you know, she handled it. And this is interesting because of he's got this desire for Cersei, but he's really more into Brienne or starting to be more into Brienne. Not fully yet, but he's getting there. 
And Brienne's doing what she always does in this dream, which is interesting because Jamie, it, it seems that Jamie uh, is getting to know her pretty well, even though he hasn't done anything until the end of the dream when he goes and saves her. He hasn't really been great to her. They've just been kind of back and forth. Sometimes they're okay. Sometimes they're yelling at each other, but he's clearly slowly building up to more. He thinks about this place in his dream being Casterly Rock, but he's also aware that nothing like this place actually exists in Casterly Rock. It's some, it's a dreams place, of course, and it's filled by things that matter to him, things that are on his mind, things that are part of his future and his psyche, mostly related to family and duty and honor. He's a Tully in his dream. <laughs> Jamie thinks of the voices echoing from, quote, all the Lannisters since Land the Clever, but doesn't think of Tyrion, interestingly. There's, there's all the other Lannisters are there, but it's, ah, uh, that's kind of curious. This isn't necessarily a clue that Tyrion isn't a Lannister, because he is a Lannister. I mean, maybe not, even if Tywin isn't his father, Joanna was his mother. So he's definitely at least half Lannister. So there's no way around that, any, no matter what theory you prefer. Still, it relates to perhaps the fact that Jamie is being excluded from the Lannister ideal. Well, Tyrion is as well. Tyrion's pushing back against his family quite a bit, and it's about to get a lot more dramatic in that regard uh, when it all comes down with his trial by combat and all that. This is just a lot, right? There's so many things going on in this dream, and the, the absence of Tyrion is actually easy to miss because there's so much happening. Who, who, who's looking at what's not there when there's so much there, right? It, that's, well, that's part of what we're supposed to be doing here. And, uh, but it's difficult because there's so many things to consider with a dream like this. He's going to tell Cersei very soon how disconnected he is from their children. That's going to come up, I think, the next chapter or maybe one after because he had to spend his life avoiding them to prevent suspicion. So just a minute ago, we were comparing him to the Tullys and some of these other characters. And now he, it's a bit like Eddard Stark, no, right? Hiding parentage to save a child. I'm not saying he measures up to Ned, not even, not even a little, but he is going to start. There is a lot of Eddard Stark vibes in Ned's or in uh, Jamie's future. And he comes up directly multiple times in this dream. And that's fitting because Rhaegar and the Kingsguard are like, hey, you didn't keep, you didn't keep my children safe. And Nina suggests, look at Lewin Martell of all the dead Kingsguard mentioning those children. Those were his great niece and great nephew. So of course, He's going to be upset with Jamie for not protecting, uh, killing the king who's going to blow up the city. That's one thing. Maybe we can debate and say Jamie gets a pass because he did the right thing. I would, I would say that, even though I would say arguably Jamie should have maybe not killed Ares, just, just captured him. But yeah, what about protecting Elia's kids? What about protecting Rhaegar's kids? They were at the Red Keep too, and Jamie was going off killing pyromancers. Maybe that was the right thing to do, but we can't forget that that was part of his duty and that it's weighing on him that he didn't do that. So whether you think he should have been more focused on that or not, Jamie does think that it matters. He personally thinks it matters. It's a source of guilt for him. So again, as I said, Jamie's going to start giving up Eddard vibes in this chapter. Now, like I said, he's not going to live up to Ned. Don't get me wrong. But he's about to be one of the very few decent people wielding power at King's Landing. And, you know, what I mean by decent is that he's starting to be decent from here forward. If you want to judge his life in total, maybe you don't want to call him decent. But most of what he does politically and as far as honor uh, is better than average by far for what's, what passes for that at King's Landing these days. So 
So ironically, though, being set free by Catelyn Stark kicked all this into motion, him becoming a lot more like Ned. Again, not all the way, but a lot of the way. Now, here's, uh, of course, a famous quote, a very famous quote. You will give my warm regards to your father? So long as you give mine to Rob Stark. That I shall. Of course, that's Bolton and Jamie. Oh, so Joe Buckley's take on this is great. Uh, the, uh, the misunderstanding, the irony. What will this come to mean when Jamie reunites with Lady Stoneheart? He just was making an idle comment, but Roose Bolton's, who, who's the one on the other side of this exchange, says this out loud to in Catelyn's hearing, and she remembers it when she's Lady Stoneheart and thinks that it was meant more severely, that it was uh, an intended point rather than just a casual comment, which is what we know it really was. So that's all setting up Jamie and Brienne and Stoneheart coming together, something that we clearly don't know where it's going just yet, but uh, that's where we're at. Jamie's going to soon be given Valyrian steel by his father, which of course he'll give to Brienne. That may be referenced here. Jamie's crying out for a sword and Tywin's voice replies, I gave you a sword. And a few chapters from now, that's going to happen. He's going to give him a sword. And Jamie's going to be upset at that gift, which is part of why he gives it to Brienne. But the swords in this dream are flaming swords, which one might be able to associate with Valyrian steel if not for the fact that they're silvery blue, these swords. It's a blue flame, which... Recall that Tyrion was astonished at the black and red color of the Valyrian steel of, of Widow's Whale and Oathkeeper. Clearly, this is not close to that color-wise. But those two swords used to be one sword, ice. Ice, the sword, isn't silvery blue either, but the concept of ice certainly is. So, I mean, in the actual color of ice certainly is, I, you could say. So is this like a fire and ice thing, ice and fire combo thing? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is close after all. Again, this is a tricky chapter. And of course, they're fighting ghosts. Jamie and Brienne fighting the dead together later. Well, that certainly figures to be a decent chance of happening. And speaking of other things that almost happened or are close to happening, a quote that seems to be one of the most cited in the entire book, at least in our discussion groups, obviously I, I see every week what people in our forums talk about and what draws their attention the most. This line, let me tell you, people are just quoting this one and talking about this one as much as any line we've seen to date in the entire reread project. In this light, she could almost be a beauty, he thought. In this light, she could almost be a knight. Now, of course, one of the reasons it draws the eye so much is that we're really, really looking hard for suggestions of Brienne's future knighthood that probably in ways that we weren't quite or even close to where uh, uh, as on the lookout for on prior reads. And if you guys have been following along with Valerie Reedus the whole time, we have seen a lot of knighting Brienne clues, haven't we? <laughs> a lot of them. There's been a lot of nods to that. And this isn't even the only one in this chapter. Nina has a lot of great takes on this chapter. Uh, and here's another one. Her, his struggle, Jamie's with his failures as a knight in the Kingsguard, they're both internal and perceived. A lot of people, of course, think Jamie was a terrible Kingsguard. I mean, Kingslayer, obviously, that's, that says it all, right? But he acts like he's not bothered. But as we know from his POV, he's quite bothered. And this dream is, is really a culmination of that in a lot of ways. He's not, he's never resolved this in his head. He's never been okay with being called an oathbreaker, no matter what he's been saying to the public all this time. He's never been okay with not doing the right thing, despite what he's said. He's a guy that was just disillusioned early on. He had ideals of being a knight. He wanted to be Arthur Dane. 
But he was just spoiled on that. He was soiled on that by seeing the way knights are treated, seeing how the world works. He just had a, he just didn't go the way of Arthur Dane. He didn't just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be this in a world like that. It just doesn't work for him. He's more like Sandor Clegane. He's not going to uphold honor to dishonorable causes. Of course, in his world right now, he doesn't consider himself honorable on either side. But now he wants to be. And now he's thinking about, he's trying, you can see himself internally arguing with himself about, oh, Brienne's tough enough to survive a few rapes. He's just trying to justify the fact that he wants to go back and see Cersei and that he's done with all this. But that's his, that's old Jane. As he wake, when he wakes up from his dream, he's changed. In addition to Endgame, Ice and Fire, Dead and Ghost vibes, all these other things, identity issues, we have at least a few things that are more the straight-up foreshadowing and almost certainly supernatural. Of course, we've talked about the, the swords, but Dream Brienne asks Jamie twice if there's a bear kept in this cavern, which seems like the most... I mean, that's blatantly obvious, right? I mean, he wakes up and goes back to Hall, and there she is, about to fight a bear. It's, you can't really... You can't miss that. Note also that, quote, terror closed a hand around his throat as Jamie's sword went dark, meaning his sword, the flame going out. And this is when Cersei is walking away, abandoning him, all his family's leaving, but particularly Cersei has got the light, the torch, and he's crying for her to, to stay. A connection, this is maybe Valonqar vibes, wrapping, uh, closing a hand around his throat. And, uh, well, terror closed a hand about his throat. Well, Jamie only has a hand. Anyway, so I, that could really work. Uh, remember, the quote is, shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you. His actions in rejecting his father and sons, his daughter and Cersei, that's all a sign to be sure. And as the Kingsguard and Rhaegar come to accuse and challenge him, Brienne's with him. That's really important. Brienne stays at his side through all this. That's super meaningful. But that's the rub. He wakes up. And how can she stay at his side if she's not by his side, if she's at Hall. So almost immediately he goes back. So I think that is ultimately the major thing here. You can interpret the details of the dream in a lot of ways, but it's ultimately bottom line about Jamie leaving his family, being with Brienne, and going back to save her specifically. Uh, Nina agrees. Joe Buckley agrees. I think a lot of y'all probably agree. Even if you have takes that fit into this about the rest of the dream, that much I think is pretty solid. He is determined to be more than what he's seen as now, even though he doesn't have nearly the same means to do it. In the dream, Brienne just says straight up, I swore an oath to protect you. And that's it. That's it. For him, for her, that's, that's it. Doesn't matter how bad it looks. Doesn't matter how the, doesn't matter if that oath is going to get her killed. She's a great example for him, right? <laughs> And he's going to pay her back in kind, right? Uh, I mean, she couldn't really be in worse hands than Hotes right now, considering his penchant for abuse and maiming. And this is also the chapter we find out he's upset because he's not getting the ransom he thought he was going to get. But this is not a Lannister paying a debt so much as it is a, a sign of a much greater future with Brienne. Even as his Lannister identity slips away, his identity as a knight is creeping on. And that's something that she can respect and brings them closer together because that's what she is. And to think before the dream, like I said, he was like, oh, I'm so ready to be done with this. I want to, I got to get back to my real woman. <laughs> and then he wakes up. He's like, let's go get Brienne. This is part of why Kyburn's role is so interesting and peculiar in this chapter. That's the one thing he does first before heading back to Hall is he talks to Kyburn. 
not only is um, Kyburn tending to Jamie's hand, which is the great symbol of his changed character, but he tells Jamie a very curious anecdote about a ghost he once saw in response to Jamie asking if Kyburn thinks ghosts are real. I wonder if there's anything about Gregor and raising the mountain uh, wrapped up in what he says here, Kyburn does, but we'll have plenty of time to talk about the mountain, the Kyborg later, but just wanted to mention that here. Now, as far as how Jamie gets to go back to Hall, I love this so much. It's so very satisfying to see, a, especially right now in the world as things are, you got powerful people that have all this leverage they have over the world and privilege to do good deeds, and they do it for themselves. So here, Jamie is manipulating Steelshanks Walton in a very Tyrion-like manner, by the way. And in fact, he thinks, what would Tyrion do? And then he does this. So this lands particularly well, by the way, because... Roy Dotrice uses very similar voices for Jamie and Tyrion. So it sounds like Tyrion, he says, what would Tyrion do? And then he's talking in a voice that's exactly Tyrion's. He's using his power for good. He's got a ton of power. He's a Lannister. He's the firstborn. He's the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. His, his, it's one of the few people, he's one of the few people in the world that Tywin Lannister won't just decide he can't do without. You know, he won't be, Tywin's not going to kill Jamie. Tywin will kill Tyrion, but he won't kill Jamie, And he'll kill just about anyone else. So, He's particularly privileged, not just because he's a Lannister, but because of he has this unique situation with one of the most dangerous men and powerful men on the entire world. And using his power for good, I just, I love it. I just wish there was more of that. And an indication, it's also an indication Jamie's not one-dimensional. He's thinking about, am I just a sword? Was I just a sword hand? And here he is using cleverness right off the bat. He thinks, what, can Tyr- what would Tyrion do? And he does it. This is exactly what Tyrion would do if, if Tyrion had the same goals. It's the old Plato-Oplomo method. Now, that's, that's commonly associated with cartels and mafia types, but it's truly much older than that. It's just, a, it's an old, it's a thing that's been around as long as there's been power structures in the world. It's basically a threat disguised as a bribe. It's the classic offer you can't refuse. Either you accept this large bribe, either you get paid, gold from a Lannister who always pays his debts, or I'm going to tell, lie and tell my father that you did awful things to me, and you know what he's going to do. And that's it. The, the translation of Plato Oplomo is silver or lead. Lead referring to the bullets you'll get if you don't take the silver. So the metals here are dialed up a bit. Instead of silver, it's gold. Instead of lead, it's steel. And at, at first, Steelshanks was like, I'm not doing this. There's no way I'm going against Roose Bolton. He says, He'd have my hide, which, well, yeah, Boltons are known for having people's hides, but Roos can't stay, save Steel Shanks from Tywin Lannister. Tywin Lannister is the more clear and present danger since they're, you know, heading to King's Landing, whereas Roos is heading back north. Bit more about Steel Shanks. Walton Joe Buckley had a good take here. Jamie says there's thousands of men like him, which is a little disturbing because he's not so bad. He's not as bad as the Mummers, but Jamie's just like, men like this guy. They'll kill on command. They'll rape when after killing, after surviving battle. And it just is, he's just so casual about it. And it's, it, Jamie's desensitized to battle and these kind of war crimes. But it's also just a reminder of just, if people behave, if regular people behave that way because of battle and, and being told what to do and, and having no agency in their life and all that, well, it just is an even bigger reason to avoid war and to not have political systems like this where people can just attack their neighbor because they want to, because they're upset, and it's legal. That's like that is clearly just not a good thing to have in a society. Take a Steel Shanks Walton type when he's in this mad state of 
having just been in battle, his blood is up, so he's going to be, you know, raping or killing more people. That's when they just sound a lot like the mummers, right? I mean, they're not any worse at, at that point. Maybe day to day, they're not as bad. Because Jamie also says that if no one's telling them to kill, they'll just go home and have kids and grow crops. So, yeah, it's not their own decision and they're not powerful enough to stop themselves. So it's a very, uh, it's a disturbing part of human nature, but also says just as much about power structures and, and how uh, people are subsumed by them and desensitized to the results of, of these things. Jamie's bravery, charging in with one hand, trying to save Brienne, that's another, it's both brave and another example of him using his power for good. Because we know that by jumping in there, He's doing, he's forcing Steel Shanks Walton to save him for the same reason that Steel Shanks Walton will, doesn't want to die because if he doesn't protect Jamie, he's going to die. And Jamie just jumps into a bear pit. There's really no choice for Steel Shanks Walton to do but exactly what he did, which is order his men to shoot the bear with crossbow bolts. You know, don't hit Jamie by accident. That's the only, <laughs> the only possible problem there. And it's great, too, the way George mixes the trope in here. It's like the first he has the knight rescuing the maiden trope, but Jamie's not really that useful, and he's it's not his knighthood. Well, he is useful. It's just not his knighthood that saves saves the day here. It is his bravery, but it's his social status uh, that really matters here because that's why Steelshanks Walton has to save him, and Brienne is not the helpless maiden. She's like trying to protect him. <laughs> like he, he, they're almost fighting each other to be the one to take the greater risk here and to face the bear. It's pretty amazing. And Brienne is also just stunned, absolutely stunned that Jamie has come back at all. She was probably just going to die in this bear pit. And now she's in a very strange place because she's a very honorable person. She doesn't like Jamie. She's, I mean, she likes him, likes him, but disrespects him and thinks he's dishonorable. But now, she kind of owes him a favor. He saved her life. That's a game changer from a person with her kind of ethics, her knightly virtues. Not a knight, but she is, as we've said a million times, she embodies knighthood perhaps better than anyone. Someone who saves your life. Well, I mean, that's, she's not going to forget that easily. Nina says, Jamie's pretty indifferent to the reputation of House Lawston when he chooses a Lawston shield, as Brienne's interactions in A Feast for Crows make clear. It's not such a small deal after all. <laughs> when, when Jamie carries a Lawston shield, it, ends, it doesn't end up mattering much. But when Brienne carries it around, people are like, that is a terrible shield. How dare you? <laughs> the Lawstons were still in power till, I think, right around 230 or 231. Definitely the 220s. It's, it's not clear exactly when they lost power. But the last few Lawston lords and ladies were, maybe it's just their reputations, but one of them was called Lucas the Pander. And Pander in this context means pimp, basically. He basically sold his daughter to Aegon IV, the, the unworthy, to get political favor. And then his son is Manfred of the Black Hood, which I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good, does it? I mean, it really does not sound good. And then after him, we have Mad Donnell Lawston, who, quote unquote, turned to the Black Arts during the reign of Maker. She sounds great. Yeah. Doesn't she? You would never say anything bad about her, at least not with me here. Otherwise, I might just mutiny. <laughs> Shea has done Mad Donnell cosplay, in case you've missed us talking about that in the past. And she is a fantastic Mad Donnell. 
I'm not sure if you make a better Mad Donnell than a, a Rose of Red Lake, but it's a tough call. Yeah. You well, also make a great Melisandre. Yes, that's true. So another name drop of Marwyn in this chapter. Very casually, very sly, very sneaky. Kyburn saying it. Mary Mazdur also mentioned Marwyn back in the Game of Thrones. So a couple, we get the Marwyn watch going on. And we won't see him on page until the end of Feast for Crows. But his name's going to come up. The context, if you, for, if you forget why he's brought up here, it's because he mentions ghosts and he talks about souls and the spirits leaving and souls being leaving a sense of themselves behind and how the Archmaesters were like, what the hell are you talking about? But Marwin was like, hmm, I'm interested. And well, to me, this is interesting too because it relates to Kyburn's beliefs in, in resurrection and things like that. It, it, it's got, I think there's a connection here somewhere in his beliefs about the afterlife and his beliefs about what's going on with this thing he created. Because Kyburn believes in souls. So what does he think is going on in this monster he made? Does he think Gregor's soul is still in there? Well, if he does, then yeah, he's a pretty brutal guy. But we already knew that about Kyburn. After all, he was hanging out with the Bloody Mummers. Power really going to Hote's head, speaking of the Bloody Mummers. I mean, he's like, I'm the Lord of Hall. I do not negotiate ransoms. Nina says, Jamie can't entirely escape Tywin's influence. I mean, in getting back to Hall, he thinks of Vargo Hote as fools for thinking of, of him and his uh, Steelshank's men as allies and letting them in the gates. They shouldn't have let him in the gates at all. They should have just been like, nah, we're not going to let you back in. And that's probably, and this is a, a bit of a nod maybe to, to uh, Ares letting Tywin back in to King's Landing right before the sack. Because they would have just been better saying, no, mm, you just stay out there. We're, we're going to stay inside the walls. You, you, can, you can hang out out there. Jamie promises Vargo Hote that a Lannister always pays his debts. Of course, we know what he means here. He's actually meaning that he'll pay Brienne's ransom, but he also means he's going to come for revenge. But that's already in play. Tywin has already planned to send Gregor Clegane to put the castle to the sword, which is going to happen before the end of this book. And uh, Vargo's already had some debt repaid, you could say, given the, uh, the fever that we mentioned back in the Arya chapter, because Brienne bit his ear off. And he's got a, a fever because that's gotten infected. You hate to see it. <laughs> Justin DL97 with the nice catch here. Cersei is described as, a, as pale with a torch in her hands, which he says is Forsaken vibes because in the Forsaken, we do have a, a woman who has pale fire hands. And that, uh, good, that's a good catch. Yeah, that could be. I lean towards that being Viserion. But I do think, but Cersei was one of my first guesses when I read that chapter as well. And I still think that's in play as a possibility. It just makes me think of wildfire. Yeah. Well, if it, but why isn't it green? You know, I know. I, why but, isn't but you're green, right. But that it is, still associates her with fire. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Joe Magician. Hey, Joe. He says, one thing is that John notes that the wall changes color all the time. Sometimes deep blue. Other times lit up red and orange in the sky and fires, which is what's happening to the ghosts in this chapter. In particular, say, I think Rhaegar's ghost changes dramatically, but I think all of them are doing that. So that's pretty cool. Good catch by Joe Magician there. Shout out to Joe Magician's channel. Check him out. Lots of great takes. One of the more um, unique theory crafters out there. Did a recent video with him on The Expanse. That's right. They did a fantastic video on The Expanse recently, and none other than James S.A. Corey himself, the author or co-author. It was Ty Frank, the half of the author. Right, that yeah. half, Ty Frank, yeah. <laughs> is, uh, actually called her out on Twitter saying, great job on that video. Yeah. Called out sounds well, like the wrong term. Yeah, but, I know that sounds like the wrong term. Yeah, but he said it in a nice way. He, he, was, liked, he, he liked Joe 
Throw Magicians editing and our chatting about it. Yeah. And The Expanse, as everyone knows, is my favorite sci-fi series. So that was real nice. Yeah. So that yeah, that was huge. That was really cool. So check it out if you guys are if you have the, the, the bandwidth for it while also doing Valerie Redis. And if not, well, check it out after Valerie Redis. Archmaester Emma points out the similarities to the Game of Thrones prologue and how they're twins to the first, meaning how Kingsguard ghosts are described as twins to each other, which is uh, they look like twins to each other. And that is how the others are described when they're fighting Waymar Royce or about to fight Waymar Royce because they're so similar. So yeah, much has been made of the connection between Kingsguard and others. The symbology is powerful there with them being kind of locked into what they were designed to do there. They don't have a lot of agency necessarily. There's the white cloak, the white mist, the lack of ability to procreate. There's the extreme skill, all these things. Great catch by Facebook mod and friend Scott Wartman, Bloody Ben Blackwood, points out a great clue that Brienne is a descendant of Dunk here. There's the line, I dreamed of you, that the chapter ends on. That I dreamed of you line comes up a lot in the Hedge Knight and the Mystery Knight. Daron the Drunkard says, I dreamed of you, referring to Dunk several times. And then John the Fiddler, a.k.a. Damon the Second Blackfire, also says, I dreamed of you when talking about Dunk. So, great catch. Good one. Very good. Also, happy coincidence that the Aria Jenny song chapter is directly before this one. Another chapter of Jamie's that reminds us of Brienne's knighthood and relationship with Jamie. Of course, in season eight, Jamie knights Brienne in the same scene as Jenny's song. <laughs> and that's also when they hook up. So this is really all tied together. And I'm not even sure if the show owners knew they were tying all that together on purpose, but it sure does work well in retrospect and in, well, and before that. It's, it's pretty hard to, I know a lot of you all avoided the show. So I apologize whenever I mention it when you don't like to hear that. But, you know, we got to bring it up every once in a while. And it's pretty hard to not hear that version of Jenny's song or to think of that scene now that it's because it was it was so great. Uh, Sandria Harp from Facebook says, Brienne, the maid of Tarth. You are still a maiden, I hope. <laughs> this is, it's meant to be a joke. But it's, again, it refers to Bri- him being, realizing that Brienne's going to get raped a bunch of times or expects that it. And he's just kind of, oh, she can handle it. So it's one of the first things he does is he's, he realizes that, no, I sh- a knight would not just wave that off. A knight would if she stop had this sex, thing. Then different story, <laughs> completely different story. So he's it's, it's layered. It's being presented as like sarcasm because he's joking. He's like, "Oh, I only rescue maidens," but really, he the first thing he's doing is like checking on her and making sure that didn't happen to her. He's like, because he, he a doesn't want that to have happened to her, and b it would he would feel really guilty if he allowed that to happen when he could have done something to stop it. Leaf, mother of tribbles, with another great Brienne is a night catch. The catch, this is this is one I've missed every single time. I never saw this one, and it's actually kind of straightforward when you see it. What does Vargo, what does Jamie say when Kyburn tells him that Lord Selwyn Evans of the, uh, the Evenstar offered 300 dragons for Brienne? And, and Jamie goes, 300 dragons? That's a fair ransom for a knight. A knight. Yeah. Okay. Good one. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. And we're ready to move on. Catlin 5. The one with Rob's will, a.k.a. Psycho Euron is back. A fascinating and ominous chapter, probably far more ominous than a lot of us noticed. This chapter, I mean, the first time through, that is. This chapter spans more than a week, probably about two weeks, and it rains off and on the whole time. This makes the trip take longer, which is frustrating for them, given the nature of this current campaign. I mean, they're trying to just undo things. They're trying to undo an insult, undo the conquest of Winterfell. Neither are going to happen, but that is uh, what they're doing. Right off the bat with the first line, there's a certain finality to it. Rob bid farewell to his young queen thrice. The third time. Sad line, I just have to say. It's so sad. It says so much about their love. Yeah, they were really, really in love. It's true. There's no doubt in that, I think. And maybe subconsciously, she, I mean, she's definitely worried about never seeing him again. And yeah, well, that is the case. Uh, Yeah, I mean, they're both going off to war. war, yeah. Yeah. Anything could happen. Good thing Rob doesn't give in uh, and does not bring her along. This is one of these many backwards, tragic, tongue-in-cheek, dark humor bits of this chapter. It happens so often that someone says something and it's like, no, and, or yes. And it's because it's <laughs> they, they're just dropping lines that, uh, that you want to shake the book or go, no, wait, no. So, but interestingly about this, there's, there's some subtlety to it. Catelyn's the one who suggests leaving Jane there because he, uh, she realizes that Walder Frey would be insulted by her presence and or would insult her because of her presence, would just couldn't, he won't be able to resist calling her names or, or making comments or what have you. And that's a reminder that Civil Spicer, as scummy as she is, she didn't know about the Red Wedding part. She, of course, she's terrible. I'm not, don't, don't get me wrong. She knew Rob would be killed, but she didn't know it was going to be like this. Civil Spicer had a deal with Tywin. Walder Frey had a deal with Tywin. Walder Frey and Civil Spicer had no such deal. This was a, a two-way deal, not a, not a t- deal triangle or whatever. Nina says the whole mood of this chapter is full of ghosts from happier times. Instead of coming down through the twins with his, what would have been his fray bride and on a way to, on his way to potential victory, he's going to the twins to apologize for a different marriage and hope they'll forgive him. He's behind the eight ball instead of in front of it. The royal train marches through the whispering wood, which is, you know, the, the spot of his great first victory, but it's like, they're un, it's like undoing it. They're going back through that. Even the weather is ominous. When they, when they won the Whispering Wood, the weather was nice. It was, it had summer was kind of going on. Now it's autumn with rain and mud. It's, the weather is meant to reflect the outlook. So yeah, uh, examples of when I just wanted to yell nope or yep at the characters, the phrase remark on how, how sad they are that, Ra, that uh, Lady Jane won't be there for the wedding. <laughs> yeah, they're sad, all right. They wanted to kill her too. And how ex- they're saying, oh, Rosalind's excited for the wedding. No, she's not. How great, great this wedding is going to be. No, it's not. Edmure feels like he's heading to a battle. Yeah, kind of. But what he's actually worried about is what Rosalind looks like. Eh. That's fitting enough, I suppose, given all the nopes and yeps. Here on out, the chapter is mostly centered around topics related to the aftermath of the death of a king. What happens when a king dies? Talking about dynasties and wills and things like that. And that's part of why this chapter is just so ominous. And maybe on first reread, uh, first read through, it doesn't come off that way because you're not aware 
of all the ominous signs, but there's so many when you sit down and catalog it. They're sitting here at this castle that doesn't even exist anymore, of this kingdom that doesn't even exist anymore, of this guy who died long ago, Christopher the Fourth, aka the Hammer of Justice. Hammer of Justice. Rob is very big on justice, and Christopher never lost a battle until he did. He won a bunch of battles and then lost his 100th, they say. He won 99 and then lost 100. That sounds a lot like Rob, right? Winning all his battles, focused on justice, a, a king of the first men, kind of representing the North in this case. Yeah. And Rob doesn't recognize this tomb. It's interesting. It's, he's uh, Christopher Mudd is the family name, uh, which is an extinct house. This is a really important piece of Riverland history, but and Rob was born at Riverrun, and he's the king of the Riverlands, according to the Riverlords. But he's not that connected to this culture because he grew up in the North. And, you know, that's where his main identity lies is with his Northern side. But and it's so it's kind of funny that Catelyn, his Tully mother, is the one educating him about the first men king of the rivers here. Now, he does not or she does not mention her brother's namesake, the historical Edmure Tully, who bent the knee to an Andal conqueror after the death of Christopher IV. And his son, Edmure Tully's son, Axel Tully, uh, received the lands that River Run was eventually built on. Because Edmure Tully, when he bent the knee to the Andal conqueror, there was no River Run. But we're talking a long time ago. So, look at all this dynasty stuff. Christopher's tomb, Balon's death, discussions of the Blackfires, and well, let's 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 remind ourselves of the Chekhov's gun concept, which is that every element of a story should matter. Now, George does not truly adhere to that principle because this is such a gigantic, sprawling story, and he changes if he's definitely changed things midstream. He tries to use every element, and that's why we dig and unearth every single element to try to see what the deal is, try to sort it out, figure it out, have fun with it. That's generally the rule of Chekhov's gun. What it says is that if you bring something up in a story, you identify something. That something should matter at some point. You don't just throw stuff in the story just for the heck of it. George might do a little of that because he wants to keep us from being able to figure things out. That's the problem with the Chekhov's gun concept. If you're aware of it, it's almost a spoiler when you see it. Maybe you don't know exactly what's going to matter, but you see the, it, it refers to a, a gun in the first act will appear in the third act is kind of the way that is often said. If you notice that gun in the first act, if you're on top of these things, you'll be like, that gun's going to be important later. You may not know why, but you know it's coming back. The point being here, you don't spend this much time on Rob's will if it's not going to matter. And for it to matter, Rob has to die. So that's part of why I'm like, man, the signs were everywhere. <laughs> like, you don't talk about a will unless the will matters. And for the will to matter, this guy's got to die. It's actually kind of straightforward when you lay it out like that. But George just snuck this past us because one, Rob dying, it was kind of unthinkable, even though Ned died. That was, in fact, that was part of why it was unthinkable. It's like, oh, he's not going to kill Ned and Rob, right? But, well, <laughs> it's also been well established that kings have to have heirs. It's a very important part of the story, having heirs. So it's kind of in line with the consistent thoroughness of the uh, the story where George has all these things that matter and doesn't let them slip through the cracks. A king should have an heir. Rob, that's got to come up for Rob. And so maybe that can be 
the discussion that's framed this way so that you don't think too much about Rob dying. You think about, oh, his descendants. It's, it's a distraction of sorts. He doesn't want, you to, doesn't want you to figure it all out. Successions, like I said, succession issues have, always, have been important since the start, too. So that's another thing that maybe you can you just think of Robert Baratheon's death. It's a major catalyst for almost everything. And, and we're just told that Balon dies. So there's so many things happening here that make you think that what's going to happen next all perhaps is a distraction from what's coming in the Red Wedding. So before he give, goes, uh, he's going to keep giving hope. Oh, and by the way, I'm mentioning Robert, his will, his bastard, his heirs. That's a huge part of the story. No one, people ignored his will, but other people tried to uphold it. So it just comes in here. Robert, Rob, right? Yeah, Rob B, Rob, two Bs. So Rob continues to make very clever and thoroughly considered small-scale moves. His tactics, his battle strategies, excellent until the end. It's why he keeps winning. He's good at it. His advisors are good at it too. And we're misled into thinking that this battle is going to happen. This, this battle at Moat Kalen. They're already thinking past the wedding to the battles, which, which makes sense. But again, that's part of their doom as well. Uh, who knows how well this planned assault on Moat Kalen would have actually gone, but you got to admit having the Krennic men on your side and helping the assault is a huge edge most other people who have tried to take Moat Kalen did not have, let alone the simultaneous attack from multiple sides. I think probably would have worked pretty well. Consider how hard it is for the Ironborn to deal with the Kranigmen without Rob's assaults. I mean, they're just getting picked off one by one with their poisons. And look at how Roose Bolton, when he does pass through the neck, he, he dresses up as somebody else because <laughs> he doesn't want to get sniped. So take the Kranigmen seriously. And, and Rob says that in this chapter. He's like, oh, my father knew the worth of Hal and Reed. I'm going to trust in that. It seems to be true. I love Rob's plan for keeping the will secret. Fake paperwork given to trusted people who know the real orders. Well, (laughs) but as always, Rob is missing the big picture. His handling things on that level is where he falls short and where his advisors help, but not nearly enough. We're also told how careful Rob is. Quote, Even farther back was Robin Flint in the rear guard. There was no enemy in back of them for hundreds of leagues, but Rob would take no chances. He's just not aware of all the ways he should be cautious. He worries about unsuspecting ambushes from hidden enemies, but it's his allies that need the additional scrutiny. (laughs) Roose Bolton and Walter Frey. Ironically, the man who gives the kind of ruthless, big-picture advice he needs is Roose Bolton. He does it right before the Red Wedding. He's given, he tells him, you know, hold Theon, make Theon, uh, execute Theon as uh, an exchange for Ironborn concessions, things like that. It's pretty good advice, even though it's ruthless, and that's next chapter. That's the kind of advice Rob probably needed ahead of time, but hmm, oh well. As always, we have to keep our eyes on cross-chapter patterns, i.e. a concept raised in, in multiple chapters close together that have never come up in any chapter before. Sometimes we can't catch these things without close examination. Note how Sansa's claim has been an issue for all this book, and now just before she heads to the Vale, we have Catelyn bringing up Stark blood connections to the Vale from three to four generations back. Yes, yes, that's interesting, isn't it? But more importantly, the name Blackfire comes up. Well, maybe more importantly. Certainly, we have more to say about that now. We just know more about the Blackfires than we know about what might happen in Sansa's arc later. An evocative and powerful sounding name, that is, Blackfire, it gains prominence starting around here. And in the Duncan novellas that come after A Storm of Swords, which is two of the three, and they're published all kind of close together, relatively speaking, uh, to Storm of Swords. I mean, Mystery Night came a lot later, but Sworn Sword was three years after Storm of Swords and well before Feast for Crows and the Hedge Knight was before. 
Let's start with swords. So it's heavy on Blackfire lore, clearly indicating George R. R. Martin's intent to expand on their importance. If young Griff is a Blackfire and he goes up against Danny, it's black versus red all over again, right? Or blacks versus greens if you prefer the Dance of the Dragons, but these are the same concepts. It's not just about the Blackfire specifically, though. It's just the idea of a family split against itself in the past and how that can have a bloody impact spanning multiple generations. Again, Danny and Aegon coming from different branches. Well, forget the fact that, that Aegon might be fake. That's, that's the same point. He's, he's subsuming that branch, whether he deserves it or not. Can I say an interesting thing? Absolutely. Just that uh, The Hedge Knight was published um, August 1998. And Clash of Kings was published November 1998. What a year. That's just a <laughs> yeah, nice year yeah. for So it was before Clash of, of Kings. Yeah. Oh, just I before. Okay. Just before. I think but actually like, concurrently, obviously, effectively, because he would have turned in. I think Clash. that I think that uh that might be UK only. I think Hedge Knight might have been published in the US after. But I'm mm. not sure about that. Oh, anyway. interesting little thing. Yeah, that's pretty that is you're right though. That was a great year. So of course, even more than Aegon and Danny. There's also John and Danny uh, with his hidden parentage and his perhaps hidden claim, which of course is a really important thing to bring up as Rob and Kat are arguing over specifically John. And of course, the Dance of Dragons isn't mentioned, but as I said, same concept. Now, Rob is disgusted with John, uh, with his mother for dis- for suggesting John would murder him or his children, and rightly so. I mean, you gotta. I I like Catelyn a lot, but this is not a good take by her. But when she says, well, what about his kids versus kids or grandkids versus yours? That's a different point. It's harsh, but tough and fair. I, I think that's maybe she should have led with that, perhaps, because, you know, comparing John to Theon was mm, not the most diplomatically <laughs> thing, best thing to say there. It's, it very much upset Rob, and, and he was no longer interested in having a conversation. He was like, okay, well, that's how you're going to be. I'm the king. I make the call. That's it. And it's also an empty point because the problem with naming John Eyre is no worse than naming a Valman as Eyre. Like, Catelyn's argument was a little self-defeating there. Either way, no matter whether you name some Valman with a shred of Stark blood or Jon Snow, you're empowering someone else and their descendants with a claim they did not have before. Valmen are worse because you don't know how honorable they are. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who are these people? They don't have, like, <laughs> a deep connection. Like, at least Johnny grew up with them. You have to think that be a lot harder for him to choose to do that. Yeah, and how and John doesn't have armies at his back where yeah, these Valmen might. Yeah, yeah, I know it's silly. So unfortunately, Catelyn's hatred of John makes her come off not so great here. But she's also, I mean, let's be honest, she's also just feeling so much loss and trauma. If and, only she loved motherless boy. Oh God, <laughs> that is the worst line perhaps in the entire <laughs> show. There's a few other nominees, but that one's just like, what? What are you talking about? Anyway. So there's reason to be sympathetic for her, despite this bad take. Uh, her powerful bias has been around uh, about John has been around even longer than her trauma, though. To be fair, so it, it's still though I'm sympathetic. She asks, she and she kind of digs the hole a little deeper. She says, "Have you considered your sisters?" And that's not going to help Rob because, of course, Rob has thought about his sisters. That's another unfair thing to say. Of course, he's thought about them. He brings them up all the time. He's absolutely concerned. I was just like, what are you saying, mom? Do you think I don't care about Arya and Sansa? What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, so that's just a really kind of rude way to bring it up. Agree or not, though. You might even agree with Catelyn, but it's still piling on. Rob is upset. You can understand why he's upset. 
And then she thinks to herself, all I did was speak the truth. Are men so fragile that they cannot bear to hear it? I mean, eh, I'm not so sure about that, Cat. Now, it is true in general. <laughs> and generally speaking, yes, there are countless truths men refuse to hear in and this book. women. In this series, in the real, yeah, Especially women Especially from their mother, from their parents. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's still his mom. Yeah, that is very true. And also, it's just, Rob has to name an heir. There's no, and there aren't any great choices. So just she needs to, she should have been a little more like sympathetic to the fact that there's no great choice at all. But unfortunately, she's got all this emotion wrapped up around John. So what we have is Cat pushed to the brink from pain, isolation, guilt, and it's a spiral. The worse it gets, the more she pushes people she loves away. The less time she gets with loved ones, the worse it gets. So it's just this back and forth, you know, vicious cycle. And this is also ominous. I mean, they're discussing Rob's will at the site of a failed kingdom, a failed kingdom of the Riverlands, a king of first man descent losing to Andals. Now, Catelyn brings up a second objection to the idea of John on the grounds of his Night's Watch oath. The idea of getting out of a Night's Watch oath is raised. Hmm. <laughs> and the concept of the rules of the Kingsguard changing because of the stripping of Selmy and Blunt is cited by Rob as a reason why he can also break Night's Watch tradition. He's sure he can figure a way out of John's oath. Nina looked up a little bit that comes from the So Spake Martin collection, meaning it's directly from the word of George. The second concerns the oaths of the Night's Watch, Maesters, Kingsguard, Silent Sisters. Both Rob and Stannis, and presumably Rob's great lord, thought it was possible that John could be released from his oaths. Other than the precedent established by Joffrey with Sir Barrison, is there any other past precedent with any of the other organizations where the members swear poverty, celibacy, etc.? This was a question posed to George, and his answer is, yes, there have been a few other cases, but they have been very rare. Such vows are taken very seriously. So it's not a precedent so much as it is extremely rare. But the idea, it's really not the details of how John gets out of his vows. The idea is that it's possible. And we saw the way it happened on TV, which I think is a pretty valid possibility for the, for the books as well. Technically, his watch ends when he dies. The old, I'm, I died, so I'm out technicality. But if his, if the will also matters, if the will says, I release, I, King Rob, release John from his night's watch vows, then it's a double whammy. It's like, oh, he's got two pieces of evidence for being out, right? I would like to go into more detail about this connection with the Royces and the Starks, but I guess it's a little too off the beaten path with how much time we have. So I recommend checking our House Royce episode. Yes, we did all about 90 minutes on House Royce, if you can believe it, and we do go into some of these connections. And in fact, there are quite a few Stark-Royce connections that go back a ways, but not too far back. It's very interesting characters that, are, that come up. And it also ties into some... Uh, not directly into Dunkin' Egg, but we reference a lot of Dunkin' Egg in it. One more last piece of optimism is delivered before the final blow of the Red Wedding. Balon's death. It's welcome. Everyone's like, yay, that's great. Even Roose Bolton's like, all right, that's great. Even first-time readers can be like, yeah, that's great. And the Ghost of Highheart has already told the Brotherhood Without Banners the same news of Balon's death two chapters ago. And prior to that, she predicted it in her, in her first appearance and told us how it happened with the rope bridge and the dragon's egg, and the faceless man, and, and Euron. Euron claims he threw the egg into the sea during one of his blacker moods, which, you know, I think that's him throwing, having Balon thrown off the bridge into the sea. Quote, Catelyn's heart skipped a beat. You are telling us that Balon Greyjoy is dead? The captain bobbed his head. 
Aye, but that's not all of it. No, he leaned forward. The brother's back. So, <laughs> lots of people are pretty happy with the news, but rereaders, we know this is, uh, oh, he's worse. Way, way worse than Balon. So, at first you're like, yeah, Balon's dead. And I don't know who this other guy is. He's only been mentioned a couple times, but rereaders are like, oh boy, this is, whew. So maybe a few of you caught that first time through. Great catch if you did, but there wasn't a lot to go on, so most of us missed that. There's only a few people who knew right away in the story, too. Not only is Euron a mystery to readers, he's a mystery to in-world figures for the most part. And A Feast for Crows will flash back a bit, not too long, but to the time when Aaron Damper hears of this same thing. He learns of his brother's death. It's the first thing in his first chapter, being told that the king is dead. And that's followed up in the Asha and Victorian chapters. Now, Aaron, clearly, if you've read his chapters, and I imagine you have, given this is a reread project, he knows better than anyone why Euron is a nightmare. Anyone would rather have Balon as a foe if they knew better. So this is, a, this is yet again false optimism. Uh, they believe things have improved, but they've gotten way worse. The mention of Theon matters too here in a sly, indirect way, because he's the one a lot of us picked to claim the Seastone chair when Euron is defeated, or as part of defeating Euron. And if not him, then maybe a child of his. And you'd be like, well, how is Theon going to have a child? Wasn't his, didn't uh, Ramsay see to that? Yes. But this isn't a big uh, This is because Theon is going to miss the king's moot. And here we go with Chekhov's gun again. Torgon the latecomer is a historical figure who claimed the Seastone chair on account of being excluded from the king's moot when he should have been allowed. So it's a technicality. He was like, hey, I was excluded from the process. I should have been allowed. And, well, he was, and then he became king. And guess what Torgon's last name is? Grey Iron. Hmm. Yeah, a little similar to Greyjoy, isn't it? But if it's, so if it's not Theon himself, then, well, that's another thing this chapter brings up, the importance of heirs. Theon has no ability to make heirs, but he, and he could name Asha as his heir, maybe, right? That's got to be possible. However, this chapter reminds us that there's another option. The man who brings the news about Balon's death to King Rob is none other than the captain of the Miraham, the same captain that took Theon to the Iron Islands in the first place, the same captain whose daughter Theon slept with repeatedly, who figured she had to be with child given how many times they did it. So if we're being technical, there's no guns in these parts, but Chekhov's heir and Chekhov's historical precedent are what we're dealing with here. So... If that's the case, Theon has a kid, all these story elements presented come off the shelf in grand fashion later on. That would be pretty amazing, but we'll have, uh, we'll be ready, ready for it. It won't seemingly be like out of nowhere, like, oh, Theon does have a kid. We're going to know why and where it came from. Now, for to be clear, we do not know for sure that this child exists. It just would fit really, really well, and especially with the historical backdrop we've been presented with. Speaking of other backdrops, though, the difficult dynastic scenarios from past and present are all over this chapter again. The succession issue of the Ironborn, the King of the North, the Blackfires, ancient kings of the Riverlands, all woven together in this really fantastic chapter. I'm amazed, but there's potential for even more since so much of this is still in progress. What I mean is that when it's all said and done, this outstanding chapter is probably going to look even more outstanding because we're going to know how it all plays out. And we're going we're gonna to be like, oh, look, this was a reference. This was a, this little sentence here that we looked overlooked is actually a huge clue. There's going to be lots of that. I mean, Old Stones has significance beyond being part of the dynastic rise and fall of kingdoms, the backdrop presented in this chapter. 
It's also the home of Jenny, of Jenny's song Fame and Summer Hall. And here we go again with that cross-chapter topic device George R. Martin likes. This has been popping up a lot too, hasn't it? Danny's thought about Summer Hall and Old Stone. So is Aria, Davos. And amidst her pain and all this backstory, Kat thinks a bit of her own history when she was here another time. Littlefinger played the role of Duncan the Small when they were kids, and she played the role of Jenny of Old Stones. Hmm. Littlefinger would never intentionally give up a crown for a woman like Duncan the Small does, even Catelyn, but he might lose his power, his crown, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, by aiming too high for Sansa and by you know reaching too far and by uh, sticking his neck out, so to speak, too much. And it could be his downfall. So that would be at least somewhat literarily similar. There's also parallels between Rob and the story of Duncan and Jenny. Like Rob, Duncan had a broken had broken a politically advantageous betrothal in order to marry someone of his choice, uh, someone who was not politically advantageous. Like Rob, Duncan's father, Aegon V, had taken a substantial political hit for that, briefly losing the, the father but the, of the betrothed, who was Lionel Baratheon, and had, you know, they had to, they had a little civil war and a new marriage to fix all that back up. Anyway, that, that one worked out. That's a, they solved that one. <laughs> the, the, jilted, uh, the jilted father was, was assuaged, which is what they were hoping for here. But alas, Walder Frey is no Lionel Baratheon. So Duncan chose to give up his crown. Rob didn't do so willingly, but it could surely be said that he lost it the moment he married Jane. And do note how similar the names Jenny and Jane are while you're at it. Couple thoughts from Joe. 3,500 men marching to the twins. Catelyn makes sure to note that most of them have been with Rob since the beginning. Well, the beginning of the end here. Uh, they, these, these were men who fought at the Whispering Wood. They fought with him in the West. They fought all these other ones. This is the Knights of Summer on their way to winter. Hmm. Not good. And well, let's say goodbye to those men. Joe wants us to remember them since they're about to be slaughtered at dinner and they're unnamed and, and we don't know them personally. We don't get descriptions of them. But every single one of those characters, you know, they all had families, lives, and loves, and they're all just a product of the, the kingdoms and power structures that exist around them. They have very little they can do but go along with it. These are men that have fled for House Stark. Their families have been hoping they could make it back home, praying every day probably with no ability to find out what's happening. I mean, consider the environment, the, the technological level here. They have no idea what's happening. These are tiny villages up in the north. They have no idea whether the war is even going on anymore, let alone going well or badly. And the news they do get is probably going to be not trustworthy and very much out of date. So, yeah. Jane proves that she's got some northerner in her. That writing. Oh, I, I know, that really? Way. I was like, really? <laughs> did you just say that? <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Lots of penis jokes today. <laughs> but what I mean is that she rode through the rain really fast to catch up to Rob to give him another hug and uh, to kiss him goodbye. And this is riding hard through the rain. That is pretty brave. Like, that's a, a good way to break your neck or what have you. So a little, little extra note about Jane's character that may have uh, slipped under the radar or under the weather in this case. Nina wrote up a great summary of where uh, Rob's will, uh, the people who know about it and where they are now. This is kind of a where are they now? Rob's will. <laughs> Edmure is alive, obviously, prisoner of the Lannisters. But on his way to Castle Rock, being transported at the start of the Winds of Winter, that might be the first thing we see. Jason Malister, alive, currently a prisoner of the Freys within his own castle at Seaguard. He 
pulled up there and, and was like, I'm going to fight till the end. But then they brought Patrick Malister, his son, and we're like, we're going to hang him unless you surrender. And he surrendered. Great John Umber, also a prisoner of the phrase, but Jamie has ordered them to give him up to the king. So whether that's actually happened yet, I don't think so, but it's an interesting twist to the possibility of where Great John's captivity will be. Catelyn, of course, is proto alive and with BWB, so she knows, but does she remember? Because, you know, they don't necessarily remember things from their life, but on the other hand, she's only been resurrected once. On the other hand, she's not very good with communicating with her neck being cut. I don't know. This is, this is tricky. I tend to think she would still know. You know, Beric has been killed six times, seven times, so he's, his memories have faded because of his repeated resurrections in part, and Lady Stoneheart, just the one time. Galbart Glover and Mage Mormont are alive, but we don't know where they are, but they're probably with Hal and Reed, and he probably knows John's real parentage too because he was at the Tower of Joy. I mean, let's, let's be clear about that. I need to point out, this is also the first time the phrase Prince of Dragonflies is, 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 is used with, uh, to uh, associate with Prince Duncan. That is also comes up when Jamie reads about Barristan's entry in the White Book. Um, so another reference to an episode we've done, I've been referencing our other house histories quite a lot today, but that's the nature of it. A lot of history has come up in this chapter. Christopher, the hammer of justice. We talk about quite a lot in Blackwood part one, the time of the tree, because it deals with these really ancient times in the Riverlands when Blackwoods were around and Christopher, the hammer of justice would have been part of that. He would have been their neighbor. But here's something else indirectly referred to in this chapter, dealing with a different still alive Christopher. In this chapter, it said that Euron drowned Lord Botley when he, Lord Botley, objected to Euron's claiming of the Seastone Chair. Later, we learn he dispossessed Lord Botley's sons. So there's another dynastic micro-story seated in this chapter. Lord Botley's sons want their castle back, but the eldest, Heron uh, Botley, will be killed at Moat Kalen by a Kranigman's poisoned arrow. It all comes together. And that leaves none other than Christopher Botley, he of the pining for Asha and the excellent predictions about Euron, what Euron will do under the radar predictions. Christopher's pretty smart, actually. Asha promises to restore Lordsport to Christopher if she you know, takes the Seastone chair. And Christopher responds, uh, you can give me that if you want. I don't care. All I want is you. <laughs> Joe says for Catelyn and company, it's slow going as we find out all the rivers are running high and all paths are blocked. This is, this is important, too, because it's going to come up with Arya and the Hound. But the irony of Rob getting involved with the phrase at the beginning of the story because he needed a bridge, now he can't get back to them because he needs a bridge. <laughs> because of the rains, they take some detours. One of those detours is to go through Hagsmire, which is the area Chet is from. Surely on purpose, because everyone loves Chet. I'm sure they were like, Chet, 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 as they marched through Hagsmire, carrying their custom Chet banners. Let us not forget that the Blackfish does not go north with the rest. He stays to lead the war effort in the area. He misses the Red Wedding, unlike the show's portrayal where he's there, but in the bathroom and just escapes. I don't see what the point of that was, but whatever. He, he, he's out there either way, and that's cool because Blackfish is cool, and we want to see what he's going to do. Lost in the shuffle, perhaps, of Kat's insistence that John can't inherit because he's a bastard and that Rob can simply legitimize him is the possibility that John is already legitimate and already Trueborn, but not a Stark, a Targaryen. So Rob's will would, would have a real wrinkle to it if, <laughs> if you can't legitimize someone who's already legit of a different house. So 
I don't know what that's going to mean. You're going to need some Westerosi legal scholars working on that one. So Archmaester Rennie with a great catch here. The Bear Island women have a nice little role in this chapter. Catlin's, uh, they've been warming up to Catlin. They've been having some friendships going there. And interesting that they talk about Lynesse Hightower and how that just makes Cat feel even more guilty because she's like, Lynesse Hightower couldn't defend herself or her family and these women can, but I can't. So she just is like, well, if I had learned to use a sword. But the catch here from Rennie is that the Bear Island women are a rare example of Westerosi subculture that Brienne would have been valued in. If Brienne had been born on Bear Island, they'd be like, oh, this is a great mother. They would, she would be like a big deal there, right? Because she's such a great fighter. And uh, it's funny that it's Bear Island with Brienne just having dealt with the bear. And how about that great line from Catelyn? I cited it at the beginning before we got into the chapter work. I, we're all just songs in the end if we're lucky about Catelyn. What songs are going to be sung about her? Is it going to be songs about, well, Lady Stoneheart or about the sad end of Lady Tully at the Red Wedding? I mean, people are definitely singing about the Red Wedding. That is a songwriter's dream, events like that. Who knows? But I could definitely, that's an interesting uh, interesting take from George R. R. Martin to sneak in there. It also could just be a reference to the, the great theme of this book, of, of the books, rather, of A Song of Ice and Fire. The song part, of course, the ice and fire part is, is not what I'm referring to here. <laughs> Stefan B. says, perhaps the Miraham captain heard Theon talking a lot about Rob, the type of man he is. And that's what maybe encouraged the, the captain to go say, hey, I bet if I bring this news to him, he'll give me a reward. Not every king, queen, lord would reward you for this news. But if Theon was bragging about the kind of man Rob was on the ship, yeah, that might uh, encourage him a bit. And that's all we have for that chapter. Time for Samuel 3, Small Paul, A Feast for Ravens, a.k.a. Hands of Cold Are Always Cold. That first part of the chapter title we made up is a reference to the new show by the creators of It's Always Sunny. They have a show called Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet. Of course, I'm also making a joke about A Feast for Crows, but hey, we're making Sunny Titles. There's a Sunny Show-related show with a similar name. And yeah, watch always. Mythic Quest. You should watch Mythic Quest. It is hilarious. And it's it's based around a multi, uh, multi-player. multi MMORPG. MMORPG, Every yes. time you try to just say the whole thing. I don't know why like, I do that. Yeah, I should just say I, MMORPG. I've caught you doing it multiple times. I'm like, <laughs> you just make it harder for yourself. <laughs> I make a lot of things harder on myself. It's as if you were like, George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series. <laughs> Every time I say it, I spell the whole thing <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, I say it all. Zeus <laughs> never abbreviates A-S-O-I-F. He just says the whole thing. So this, is a, this chapter contains a song, a dream, a cloud of ravens, one of them who, who talks peculiarly in cold hands. Quote. White tree, Sam thought. Is it though? I'm not sure. It's, it's confusing. The, the World of Ice and Fire app says, yes, it's white tree. Sam's opinion is that it doesn't look like it anymore. He's like, this isn't quite right. It's, it's The tree isn't as big. There's that huge like hollow in the white tree's tree that's got burned bones in it. Like you'd think Sam would see that. He doesn't remember the red sap in its eyes. He thinks the expression might be different. So he's just not sure. And honestly, I we don't know either. It, it seems like the, the supporting materials don't really clear this up for us. But I don't suppose it's that important. Just a little curiosity. Sam has adopted the old gods, and that's important here. It, he's, surra- it's, he's surrounded by evidence that there's something real about them, if not a lot of somethings, yet there's nothing that can replace the comforts of childhood. So he sings the Song of the Seven, 
with a verse for each of the seven, except the stranger, of course. Now, of course, it's a comfort from his childhood that also has a lot of bad memories associated with it because his father doesn't like singing and thought the singing made him soft. He associates those things together. So while it's, it's a, well, this is Sam for you. A lot of his happy memories are overshadowed by his father's opinion of that happiness. Randall pretty much didn't approve of any of the things that made Sam happy, which is a good sign of a terrible father. Sam has a dream, but first a daydream about his father telling him that he slew an other and he can predict his reaction. He's like, he's just not going to believe me. He would never believe that this happened. He would have to have like evidence or people telling the story and how would that ever happen? And honestly, it is easy. It is kind of hard to believe that Sam killed another if we're being really harshly honest. Even some of Sam's Night's Watch brothers don't believe it. But there were witnesses <laughs> and, and some, several of them are still alive. Gren was there. Plus, there's the whole matter of convincing people that the others are even real in the first place, which the, the Night's Watch believes, but his father? I don't know about that. And what's crazy, too, is that it really seems like, and this is a big statement on how important fatherhood is and how important fathers and mothers are and how big an impact they can have, bad or great, on their kids. It really feels like Sam is just as scared of his father as he is of the undead, which is like, wow. His sleeping dream is of him out of the watch, hosting a meal for his friends, wielding his family's Valyrian steel blade heartsbane, and married to Gilly. This will surely look prophetic if Sam and Gilly marry later, and the dream also has Lord Mormon in it, so that's not happening. So it can't all look prophetic, but parts of it could. And from the TV show, well, some of this stuff happens. Uh, I don't know about it all happening in the, in the books, but there's reason for optimism in that regard. White Small Paul arrives in the night. Gilly says he's come for the babe. So Small Paul may have gotten his wish in death. A raven sitting on his shoulder, eating his cheek, but <laughs> still. <laughs> it winds up speaking to Sam. It might be Mormont's raven, the very one Small Paul wanted, which would be very George, but we're not sure about that. Still, it actually tells him to run. It's wild because that, no other, no one says run or go. It says go, yeah. No one says go. So it's a raven actually speaking without being prompted. And it's the thing that's, that keeps happening with Sam is he freezes up and someone tells, hey, Sam, go. Or, or in, in the first time it happens, someone, this someone, small Paul, scoops him up and carries him. The next time, Sam gets up on his own because he has time. And this time a raven is like, get moving. So that's interesting. Now, Sam again defeats this foe his frozen fire failed to come through a second time, perhaps because he didn't actually touch Small Paul's flesh with the dragon glass dagger. It was stopped by Small Paul's chainmail. So if he had actually stabbed Small Paul with the dagger in like his face or his arm, maybe it would have done something. It may have broken the spell, uh, canceled the other's control over the dead body. So... That's why we still don't know what Dragonglass's effect will be. But I still think it probably will work. I've said that before, like in the Fist of the First Men chapter. But we definitely see here that whites are very flammable. And, well, here's another important detail from a quote here. Sam sucked in air and rolled feebly away. The white was burning, hoarfrost dripping from his beard as the flesh beneath blackened. 
Sam heard the raven shriek, but Paul himself made no sound. When his mouth opened, only flames came out and his eyes. It's gone. The blue glow is gone. Yikes. So again, let us consider the other's control over the dead resembles a skin changer bond. So, you know, like a skin changer feels the pain inflicted on the animal. Maybe that's what's happening here. I kind of doubt it, but something is happening and fire breaks the bond. The blue glow goes away. It breaks the spell. The whites arrive in force, though, here. It's not just Small Paul. Sam recognizes many of them. Small Paul, even though he's gone, by this point, he's already been burned. The men he had conspired with are with him in death. It's, you got Sweetfoot and Chet and these others. So like I said before, Gilly claims they want the child. Perhaps they do. But as we've said before, it might be the horn they want. And hey, why not both? A newborn and a magic horn. That's quite a haul for an other or a white. Most of their 8,000 some years of days are not nearly so exciting or profitable. Nina agrees that the whites were after the horn, not the baby, uh, or at least that the horn is more important. The others certainly seem to utilize Craster's sons. It seems like a lot of effort to send a bunch of whites after a single baby. It's not like Gilly's son is the only baby on the far side of the wall. Wildlings are having babies all over the place. Like there's a whole society's multiple cultures. Yeah, there's lots of babies being born beyond the wall. Let's, Let's be clear about that. That's a good point. Why is he special? Why is Craster's baby that special? It's a baby of incest. Is that why they want it? I mean, what is it? I, I, maybe this is why, by the way, this is why people have theories about Craster's identity, that he might have Stark or Targaryen blood or something like that, which I can't dismiss. I just don't think it's very, it's supported very well. I think it's more along these lines. This, this, this makes more sense to me. The horn is something they want. The baby is like, yeah, there's plenty of babies out there. I definitely lean that way. Thankfully, the ravens are as numerous as the, are more numerous than the whites. The ravens overwhelm them, at least enough to give Sam and Gilly a time to run towards this man on the elk yelling, brother. What a chilling moment to be rescued by something that should not exist and a cloud of ravens. I mean, better than dying, but woo. All right, we're going to go into greater detail on Cold Hand some other day. He's a big enough topic to spread out a bit. Um, there'll be lots of time for that. We don't want to get bogged down when we have so much to talk about. But where was he during the attack on the fist? If Sam needed defending because he had the horn, then why wasn't Cold Hands there when another came for him? Why wasn't he helping protect him then? This is the first time Sam has been away from his other Night's Watch brothers, which might be the point. How would Gren and, and the rest have reacted to Cold Hands coming up on them like, hey, I'm here to help? They'd be like, what the hell are you? You're undead. They wouldn't necessarily be so friendly towards such a being, even though he's wearing Night's Watch black. They don't generally look kindly or think with a lot of nuance on the walking dead. Although if Cold Hand's talking and having ravens, who knows how that conversation would have gone, but that's a very good reason for why Cold Hand's had to stay away. He couldn't trust the Night's Watch to react positively to him, to not react murderously, to not shoot him with arrows or cut him or try to burn him or what have you. And Nina wonders if this is why Bloodraven decided to send cold hands now. Bloodraven would have as much interest in keeping the horn away from the others as anyone else, perhaps more so because he might be more clear on the actual means in play here. He may know for a fact that it works, whereas everyone else is like, huh? So Bloodraven may have figured the horn was safe when it was in the big group of Night's Watch. And then when that all blew up, he was like, ooh, I gotta do something about that. And maybe he just wasn't nearby enough to help. I mean, 
Blood Hand, Blood Hand, Blood Raven is not omniscient. He does have massive power, but it's it's impossible for us to be thinking that he can just be seeing everything at all times and always be aware of everything. Nah, it's not quite that quite that powerful. I don't think he's just like we've said before. He's got to know where to look, and he might be looking at other things. There's, there's, there's I'm sure Blood Raven has other things he's working on, other projects, <laughs> other ways of saving the world. Interestingly, that he here he. Praise. Joe wonders if the prayer to the old gods is what perhaps helped. Maybe it mattered. Maybe that is how Blood Raven knew where he was. I kind of doubt it. I kind of feel like he would be able to see that anyway. And, and how could Cold Hands have showed up so fast if he wasn't already on the way? I mean, he had to already be close by to show up right at the last minute like that. But maybe the old, Joe floats the theory that it's tinfoil, but maybe that prayer is what brought the others. Maybe that's what alerted them to their presence. Eh, probably not, but it's worth considering. I do like that idea. And also, let's spare a thought for Gilly. This is a really crazy experience for her. We were really focused on Sam. I mean, it's we're in his head, but Gilly's becoming a more important character. She's a beloved figure. She's a good character. We like her, I think, mostly. Uh, most people, I mean. Who doesn't like Gilly? Yeah, I don't know. There's bound to be a, one or two people out They're there. They're like, yeah, incest. <laughs> yeah, you know, that might get some people. Literally everything she knew of the world is now gone, and she's on her way to a reality she probably can't conceive of. Think of Ygritte looking at a tower house and going, oh my God, that's so big. And this is, and Gilly hasn't even been exposed to as much as Ygritte has because Gilly's cooped up in Craster's Keep under a ver- an authoritarian rule while Ygritte clearly had the means and, and disposition to be her own person. Just think about it. Eventually, Gilly sees Essos. It's <laughs> crazy. She's going to go to old town, you know? <laughs> She's seeing so much. It's yeah. awesome. And I mean, think about how cultured she is. She's, she asks, can I stand by the fire, me and the boy, not for a long time, just till we're good and warm? And Sam's like, of course you can. Have as much as you want. Drink food. and we'll Have give as you- much fire as you want. Yeah, it's like, this is, it's like, wow, she, Craster denied her fire? Damn. Ugh. Joe argues that Sam facing down Small Paul, standing in front of Gilly, not only is it a little bit like Jamie and Brienne uh, in terms of thematics and, and just the way it's presented, uh, being really brave with no means to prevent what's happening. It's just purely, it's pure bravery. Jamie actually does have means because as we know, uh, he knows that they're going to shoot the bear. But so Sam is more brave here, I think. He has nothing, no hope, no expectation of getting out of this. But he's still as quote-unquote cowardly as Sam is. He is ultimately brave when he's afraid. It's very much Ned vibe, something a lot of our commenters pointed out. They gave them big, big feels. They're like, oh, Sam is totally channeling the lesson Ned gave the brand here. And he's just standing in front of danger with no expectation of victory or hope, just doing the right thing. It's super brave. So like, yeah, yeah. Joe says it might be the single bravest act in the entire series. And I'm, I find that hard to argue with. I'm not sure that it is because I'd have to really think about all that. I'd have to really lay it out and think about it. But as a strong candidate. Sam's the best. Sam's <laughs> the best. <laughs> Oddly enough, uh, as Nina points out, it's the only mention we ever get of the Song of the Seven, which is quite striking, as you'd figure it would be pretty popular down in the South, and the amount of time we spend in the small folk, uh, or with the small folk, we get, we get all that time in the Riverlands, we get Sept of Baylor, later we're going to have the, the Sparrows, and uh, lots of people coming in, and we still don't get that song. 
again, but it's a lullaby. That that's the one theory. Um, it's not a body song. It's not like the kind of song people sing when they're drinking. So maybe that's it. It's just like not the kind of. It's not a raucous bar song that would explain it. I guess. Archmaster Rennie points out how much gender roles are a theme. And that might have been something I could have brought up at the beginning. We got the gender role of Sam. We got the gender roles of Bear Island and Brienne. We got the gen- and of course Brienne and Randall Tarley are going to meet later. So that's going to kind of come full circle in a sense. And that's it for that one. Let's go to our last chapter, one of the shortest chapters we will cover. It's uh, a short chapter, so but it's got some good important things in it. It's our last one for today. Aria 9, the gang takes a ferry, a.k.a. a storm of siblings. It's not the river itself that's the problem. It's how badly it's flooded. Normally, Sandor and Arya would find a spot, a ford, meaning a place where the river is shallow enough to, to cross. But it's definitely not happening now. This goes to show the incredibly unpredictable nature of war in the Riverlands. Arya and Sandor are two people on a horse. They're not an army right? They're two people and they have a lot of difficulty. So imagine how hard it would be for an army to get from, from one side of a river to another. Certainly that ferry they take wouldn't be enough. That would take like weeks to ferry, just one ferry bringing a couple dudes at a time over. That would not be an option, an option that would work. Not a good solution. Rivers are sometimes lower, meaning crossings are easier to find. So it, Constantly, the options armies have in the Riverlands are always changing. And they're unpredictably changing. They might be like, oh, we can cross several rivers at once. Two days later, none of those rivers are crossable again. Such a difficulty in terms of strategic planning and timing. With the rivers as they are, so Sandor and Ari head for Lord Haraway's town, named for House Haraway long ago, a formerly high enough house in esteem that they married into the Targaryens. However, it was... A marriage to uh, yeah, Magor the Cruel. So they uh, did one had the opposite of the Targaryen merit lottery there, marrying about as bad as you can get with the Targaryens. It's the old, there's so much gambling associated with Targaryens and Targaryen marriages, and the coin flip thing. And yeah, well, they knew. I mean, this guy was already Magor the Cruel. He took our Alice Haraway as his second wife. And well, can't do that. He's not King Magor at this point, he's Prince Magor. And his brother, Aenys, was like, no. Aenys wasn't exactly a, a tough, uh, in-your-face kind of guy, but even this was enough for him to send Magor into exile or force him to give her up. He chose exile. He came back when Aenys died and claimed the Iron Throne, and the you-can't-do-that part of this no longer applied because who's going to tell Magor the Cruel that you can't have multiple wives? So he not only made, uh, kept, him as, kept her as a wife, he made her father, Lord Lucas Haraway, hand to the king. And then she gave birth to one of those monstrosities that Magor had several of. And Magor was led to believe that she cheated on him. And that's, where the, uh, mon- that's why it was a monstrosity. Magor executed every Haraway he could. And uh, the town was given to his master coin, Alton Butterwell, instead. Lord Haraway's town was burned by Vagar and Prince Aemon during the Dance of the Dragons, and here it's flooded. So instead, yeah, instead of flooding, it's burned. Hmm. Yeah, so bad things have happened to Haraway's town over the years. Instead of uh, uh, being able to cross normally, we have Operation Con the Ferry, using your non-existent knighthood as collateral. 
Yeah, Sandor isn't a knight, but he isn't above calling himself one when uh, the situation calls for it. We're shown so much murder and devastation that we may have forgotten that the death of common decency is part of it, like paying for services rendered. It's just not a dependable thing anymore. It's something we take for granted, probably. Like, you, you buy something, you expect to get what you paid for, and the person expects to receive payment. This is very, it's very hard to fathom that part of the social order falling apart and how to deal with it. And this is part of, it feeds into Sandor's expectations and his worldview, which is that this, the, this world is ruled by strength and by strong sword arms. And that is bearing itself out here. Sandor says he wouldn't have done this, though, if he hadn't been robbed by the brother without banners. That's who he's running from. It's not great justification, but... He, you know, he wouldn't be desperate if they hadn't taken his money. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying he has a right to steal from somebody else, but it does show you how poverty feeds poverty. He's got nothing. He's desperate. So he takes desperate measures. But as we'll see, it's not quite so simple because Sandor on the run is, everybody knows what he looks like. He is a very recognizable figure, which is a very ironic given how often Arya passes beneath notice when she is incredibly valuable as a hostage. People don't even know what gender she is, let alone that she's a Stark. And she's, of course, going to become even more incognito through skill in the long term as a faceless man. So it's it's a bit of a reverse parallel here that she's hanging out with someone that just cannot conceal who he is almost no matter what, except for a few cases where, you know, he puts a hood on and is able to take advantage of the fact that nobles don't look twice at commoners. And that's how they're able to sneak in the Red Wedding. But that is an outlier. When Sandor's walking around here and there, that size and burned face, there's just really not much else you would think. Everybody's heard of him and knows what he looks like. Speaking of perspective, major part of the chapter for Arya, maybe you don't get along great with your sister. But imagine Gregor is a sibling, right? That's what Arya's face was. She's like, I don't, I don't get along great with Sansa. I don't like Sansa that much. But then she's like, but you have Gregor as a brother. I mean, San having Sansa as a sister is nothing compared to having Gregor as a brother. So that's a, that's a, way, a little bit of an eye-opener for her. Now, most would say Sansa is prettier. And she's definitely taller. Now make that comparison with Sandor to Gregor. Sandor's huge, but Gregor is bigger and older. And well, with regards to who's more handsome, I don't know that Gregor's handsome, but Sandor, I mean, he's burned. His face is burned. Of course, he's not more handsome. So it's just putting all this perspective for Arya is like, yeah, well, my own problems, my own brothers and sisters don't seem so bad when you put it like that. So I, I think that's perhaps to me the most poignant part of this chapter. I love it too, because there's some humor here. She said, he says, uh, the hound says, you don't know what bad's really like. You've never met my brother. And he's like, and Arya says, oh, I've met him. And she starts naming his men, like Oliver, the tickler. And hound's like, what the hell? How do you know those guys? How does Ned Stark's daughter know the tickler and <laughs> yeah not only is she like oh he's got a guy that looks like this she knows them all by name so that's like or the hound is like that's the first time the hound is probably surprised in, in quite a while it's it's very it's it's good dark humor here 
And also of interest is, is the way that Sandor refers to her versus the way that Sandor refers to Sansa. He's one of the few characters who has a, a distinct relationship with both the Stark girls. And he calls Sansa, what's his nickname for her? Little Bird. But Arya, he sees her toughness, uh, her you know, physical toughness, which is different than Sansa's toughness, and calls her She-Wolf. Do you think when Sansa gets older, he'll call her Big Bird? <laughs> so I wonder if this is on purpose or not. It might be symbolic. It might not be. But a dead tree described like a kraken comes rushing downriver in a storm. Euron storm. Right after we're told Balon has died by falling into the water. Eh, maybe that's a stretch, but it feels like it could be a little symbolic nod. Stranger the horse who we get to know in this chapter, kind of under the radar, we get Stranger backstory. <laughs> it's a horse that inevitable that draws inevitable comparisons to Stranger, the aspect of the Seven, the same thing that wasn't sung of in the Song of the Seven, because the Stranger is always uh, is kind of like the representation of death, or you know, death is is putting it too simply, but you get you, you know what I mean. But with Sandor's stated belief that killers rule the world, well, that's pretty powerful as far as the symbolism in this chapter goes. And of course, crossing rivers. That's a symbol of transition. That's one of the oldest literary tropes there is. Crossing a river, transitioning into a new realm or new story or new part of the story. And it's also a logistical reality in river lands. But So think of the river Leth here. It's the river in Greek myth that causes total forgetfulness. If you drink from it, you forget everything. The hound is running from his past and Arya is going to be faced with you need to erase your past an identity to be no one. Yeah. And, and we know these ferrymen are not going to forget Sandor. We know maybe he did it out of self-preservation, out of desperation. But these ferrymen are innocent. And we know that from the quote at the end of A Storm of Swords, we know the Brother Without Banners are still chasing. Well, me not now, but they were for a while chasing after them. And they found the ferrymen and talked to them. And so they got the news of what happened. So. Yeah, maybe, I don't know if it's a symbol in there too. I don't know if uh, cheating the ferryman is part of the Greek myth of Charon and all that, or maybe cheating death is, there's another bit of symbolism wrapped up in there, but I don't know. Sandor is special one way or another. He's a hellhound, so that's another reason I think of Cerebrus, who is a three-headed black dog. I mean, come on, y'all. Uh, definitely making some nods. And of course, there's rain here, as we talked about. It's the same atmospheric device in Catalyst chapters, but uh, it's, it's inconvenienced to higher nobility. It's, it's presented differently here. I talked about the difficulty of armies dealing with the Riverlands, but what about just regular people? This rain, this, let alone the war, it's ruining jobs, taking away livelihoods, and, and they have no recourse, and their leaders are too busy fighting each other to make things right. The Hound really doesn't like Micah being brought up. That's a big deal. And it's, uh, it shows that he really does feel guilty about it. And he's perhaps even more confused and guilty given that he won his trial by combat. We talked about it at the time. It seems to be coming back up here. He knows he killed Micah, yet he won the trial by combat. That reinforces another thing of his, another part of his beliefs. And his beliefs are depressing. Again, he believes that swords rule the world. He just won a trial by combat that he knows he's guilty of. So that just reinforces to him that the gods aren't real, something he'd said before that trial by combat. And now, uh, so he's just left with 
yeah, there's no karma. There's no gods making things right. It's just, I killed a kid and that's it. But he's definitely sensitive about it. He says, next time you say that name, I'll beat you so bad you'll wish I killed you. Sandor being threatening people, that's nothing new. But yeah, the idea that this makes him mad is very interesting. Now, uh, so she thinks that the, the Brotherhood are going to catch them and partly because of Thoros's flames. But, well, Sandor was uh, more clever than that. He knew what to do. He, uh, the flames may have shown Thoros and the Brotherhood where Ari and Sandor went but he made it that they couldn't follow. They may know that he crossed that river, but the ferryman was stuck on the other side for so long. So Joe says it's a pretty good way to sum up Sandor Clegane, this quote here, because I hacked your little friend in two. I've told a lot more than him. I promise you. You think that makes me some monster? Well, maybe it does. But I saved your sister's life too. The day the mob pulled her off her horse, I cut through them and brought her back to the castle. That's not just Sandor Clegane. That is kind of George's attitude towards human beings. This is, this, this is a seminal line that really describes the grayness that George is aiming for with most of his characters. People who do bad things and good things. It's an extreme because saving someone's life from a mob is a really extremely bold, difficult act to do. But chopping a child in half is also an extremely gross, evil, violent, brutal thing to do. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's another hallmark of George where most people are, are gray in much more mild gray ways. We're not out here chopping people with swords nor saving people with swords. So it's presented in a very, uh, in a way that's very fitting for this setting that is very unfamiliar to our world. Also, I wonder about him thinking he might join the Starks. Did, did, was there some, was that maybe some lost honor? Maybe he's trying to like, recover some honor by joining the Starks because he's tired of being kicked by I mean, the Lannisters, as you say. clearly says. like dogs, wolves. This makes way more sense <laughs> than a dog and some cat. <laughs> Thoros of Mir paid no heed to the banter. The Hound has lost more than a few bags of coin, he mused. He has lost his master in kennel as well. He cannot go back to the Lannisters. The young wolf would never have him nor would his brother be like to welcome him. That gold was all he had left, it seems to me. He's a broken man. He's very much this broken man concept that we talked about quite a lot throughout these books since broken men started appearing during the war. Uh, he has nothing. No one will take him. He has very little hope, very little outlook. Uh, he's left with the thing that he's always thought was the only thing, which is strength and, and his sword. So. That's a really desperate spot to be in. He handles it pretty well, the, the, given how bad it is for him. I mean, he can't go back to the Lannisters, and the Lannisters are the, the chief power in the land. He's, all, he's a fugitive. It's not good. He can't do anything. He's, he's really, he, getting, going overseas might be his best bet. It's funny that he, he's, he's unable to do that, but Arya does. There's a bit of a Jamie Brienne dynamic in Arya and Sandor's interactions. Of course, we've compared Sandor to both Brienne and Jamie in many ways because of the knighthood issue and the strong swords ruling the world kind of deal. Arya hates Sandor, justifiably, for butchering Micah. And um, that's kind of why Brienne hates Jamie for being the Kingslayer. Now, both of them, meaning Jamie and Sandor, are used to getting their way because people. I mean, in battle and stuff, and when it comes to violence, because they're such elite swordsmen and so feared, and they're just 
so great at fighting. Facing down Brienne and Arya, though, this is a different kind of challenge. Women are a different challenge to a person like they are. Jamie and Sandor are both very wrapped up with their thoughts about women and very abnormal lives as their perspective of women goes. Sandor is this doesn't have relationships. He's he probably has these thoughts about his sister being killed by their brother, if that's what happened, which it probably is. He's never had normal relationships. Arya, meanwhile, similar stuff here. Curiously learning more about it, just like Brienne learns that there's more to the Kingslayer story. It's not just as simple as Jamie killing the king. It's not just as simple as Sandor killing Micah. There's more to it. They're not identical situations, but you can see the parallel and how they uh, kind of play out of it. Now, a few last bits. Sandor's Stranger is a uh, perhaps a nod to Alexander the Great's Bucephalus. That's a uh, catch by Nina here. I like that. I, I used to be a big Alexander the great file. I would read everything there was about him. So I agree with this take. A huge black horse that was unmanageable, except for by his owner. Uh, Bucephalus apparently would not let anyone else ride him, but Alexander... He was very ill-tempered, dangerous, big, and black. And uh, yeah, so that's, that might be it. That might be the inspiration for Stranger. Stefan B. is highly amused that the Hound can't start a simple campfire and gets mad at it because that's just too fitting. The Hound just has such a terrible relationship with fire. Even little cook fire. Well, I mean, to be fair, it also speaks to how he's always been with people. Yeah, that's true. He's never been the kind of person that just... Is out on his own. Good uh, point. You know? Yeah. He was hired by the Lannisters when he was like 12 yeah. or 10. He He's was probably... He's always had men around him. He's not, yeah. you know, used to just roughing it, basically. You're right. He, he... Well, it is roughing it, but he's not used to doing it alone without yeah. a support network. While, while being chased and a fugitive. Yeah, you're right. This is, this is very different for him. It's, it's teaching him, like, you know, maybe I should have learned to do a few of these things. Yeah, but, but obviously <laughs> it makes sense why he didn't learn how to start a fire. Yeah, for Point sure. For sure. Let's, I want to hear, I want to taste his cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, we covered 184 minutes. Well, two weeks ago, rather, we covered 184 minutes and 38 seconds of the audiobook. This week, it was almost the same, 179 minutes, 30 seconds, five minutes, eight seconds less. So far, we've covered 1,674 minutes, 17 seconds of the 2,853 minutes, 37 seconds in A Storm of Swords. Normally, I, this is where I say, check the video length to see how much has been edited out from the podcast version. But we had a false start today with our, te- uh, our technology revolting on us for a few minutes there. So I don't know. How long is the video length? Right now, the video length is two hours, 51 minutes. We actually did about two hours and 41 minutes. Okay. So once I cut that out... It'll, it'll be down to what it should be. So anyway. Okay. Oh, and, and ultimately, by the time people are looking at YouTube later or something, it will be trimmed out that 10 minutes blackness. Cool. Well, next week it is Red Wedding Week. We actually will do six chapters, not the usual five, because there's several really short chapters and action chapters often have, there's less to say about action in terms of its devices of foreshadowing and all that. Although there are, exceptions for sure so this is definitely another one you won't want to miss we've got our homemade titles ready starting with john six the gang warns the gang or the john warns the gang aka (laughs) i'm sorry let me me say that again (laughs) what is this title here i wrote this all funky anyway john warns the gang aka the one with stabbing vibes it's the only one that doesn't really have to do with the red wedding despite the stabbing vibes 
Catelyn VI, the one with a piece of Theon, a.k.a. the Red Wedding Reception Party. Arya Ten, Red Wedding Crashers, a.k.a. the one where the hound robs a farmer. Catelyn Seven, the one where people throw their book across the room, <laughs> a.k.a. the actual Red Wedding. Arya Eleven, the gang fights Frey marriage, a.k.a. the one where George is mean to us. I love the gang fights Frey marriage. <laughs> Tyrion Six, the gang hears the news, a.k.a. the one where Joffrey gets sent to bed. <laughs> Not long after he gets sent to dead, but that's not next week. That's a few weeks after. Oh, this is fun. <laughs> Just real quick. Yeah. Lady Leaf Underhill points out that Sam needs Gilly to make fire. It's a rare <laughs> parallel between Sam and the Hound. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's true. I didn't think of that. Yes. Little, little coddle. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for attending today's live stream or listening to it afterwards if you're catching the uh, the replay or the podcast edited version we appreciate you sharing this with your friends liking and subscribing and commenting leaving reviews all these things matter quite a lot they help us get they help us appear in the youtube algorithm it makes sure we're suggested to other people watching similar type content and on the podcast side it just promotes us on the YouTube or on the iTunes charts, rather, which is the same thing. It gets us noticed, helps us uh, catch new listeners, bring new people to our great fandom. We always like creating new West stories. There's always more people out there waiting to join this excellent family of fandom that we have. Shea is the best handling the technology when it, uh, like I said, when it revolts on us and puts her in, a, in an awkward spot. Tried to but make she, us into robots. Yeah. The new she, robot race. <laughs> but as usual, she handled it very well. Joe, Buckley, and Nina, thanks to them for their great contributions as always. Check out the Isle of Faces podcast and Good Queen Alley. That's with one L on Tumblr. Thank you, as always, to our History of Westeros mods. You guys do a fantastic job sharing each chapter uh, one at a time with art and discussion points to help raise the profile of the chapter and to help us discuss other things that might have gotten missed. Once again, Flick, Facebook, Slack, and Discord are the places to find those discussions. You can find those in the description of the video and or by going to any of those groups has the links to the other. One way or another, you'll find it. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld, aka claradox.de for making our maps and for helping us get set up with music and things like that including the intro music we use for Valar Revitas. Aziz has a new Witcher podcast and YouTube channel that uh, I would be remiss if we didn't mention. And Michael did a, a, a Witcher map and he did um, a special intro, outro video for them. It's true. just amazing. We've done one episode of the Witcher pod so far. The, the podcast version is not up yet. By the time some of you hear this, it might be, though probably not because a first-time submission podcast takes a little extra longer to get up. But we have recorded the first episode. It's me, Kyle Foster, and McCall Schick. A lot of y'all know McCall from Bastards of Kingsgrave and for our, from doing voices for our scripted yeah, episodes. Yeah, if, if you like the quotes in our episodes, she's not, I mean, that's not her voice, but she still has a beautiful voice. And she's doing that voice for Witcher quotes. So I think a lot of you all will be very surprised with the quality of the writing of The Witcher. It's really deep. It's really good. We're having so much fun with it. And it's really funny, too. There's a lot of humor in it. So... Uh, we do a big thorough synopsis of the first short story. So if you don't, if you haven't even checked it out, just come check out this first episode, and you'll we'll, we'll explain the story and a lot of the world, and maybe you'll maybe you'll decide it's for you. 
Also, thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reredis music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for our gen- usual history of Westeros music. Thanks to our Benjineer for working stuff in the back end. Thanks to our patrons for keeping the lights on. Extra important right now with the world, the state it's in. So we have extra love for those of us who are able to, those of you who are able to stick with us. You super, super appreciate it. And those of you who can't, well, we understand that too. This is, these are strange times, difficult times. And we will keep the content coming. No doubt. We have another, we have an, our next live stream is Tuesday. Of course, uh, that's a Barrison Sell Me, Kristen Cole episode. And we will keep the, also, we're doing game streams twice a week during uh, the time right now, during the quarantine season. So Wednesdays and Fridays, if you're enjoying the Crusader Kings 2 uh, plays, then say it's check a it quarantine stream. It's a what? Quarantine stream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, corn stream. Oh, I get it. It took me a second. Yeah. Really? Corn stream. It was really dumb, but still. <laughs> so, yes, thank you very much to everyone who supported us, everyone who's going to support us. And of course, you can, uh, we'll see you all next time. We appreciate the love and hope everyone's doing well. Valar, reread us.